Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Patrick Kearney once said, when I was eight years old, I had a feeling I was going to do these things. He was referring to the many horrible murders of both men and boys as young as five years old that he would later commit as an adult. Patrick Wayne Kearney was one of the infamous freeway killers lurking around Southern California in the 1970s, also nicknamed the trash bag killer because he dismembered some of his victims and put the remains in trash bags, which he then often dumped alongside various California highways and freeways. And as the story goes with most of these dirtbags, no one saw it coming with Patrick. Everyone was shocked when it turned out that he was a serial killer. By day, Patrick was a hardworking engineer. His small stature, he was 5'5 and slightly built, and his high intelligence and friendly demeanor led most people, maybe even all people, to lower their guards when they were around him. No one, it seems, suspected that anything was seriously wrong with him, that he was capable of such violence, not even those he was closest to. He tended to kill after a fight with his boyfriend, David Hill, the only long-term romantic interest of his life. Or when David had temporarily left Patrick, dating someone else or even living with someone else in another part of the country, that was when Patrick, furious over the rejection, would drive around Southern California's highways, parks, uh, gay bars, picking up young men and boys who had no idea they were now living their final minutes. What had happened to him before dating David that would lead to him reacting so extremely? Well, he'll later say he was severely bullied as a child and that he tended to pick victims who reminded him of those bullies. But I don't know if I buy that. I think although he would never state this, uh, this explicitly, that he primarily did what he did because it gave him a sexual thrill he couldn't get with the living, consenting person. I think he did what he did because he didn't want to sexually dominate you while you were still alive when you might scream or cry or beg for your life or fight back or try and escape when you might just move in a way that he didn't prefer. He wanted total control. He wanted to control you completely. He wanted his fantasy to go exactly the way he preferred. He wanted to sexually dominate you after you were dead when you were nothing more than a sex doll made out of human flesh. I think Patrick Wayne Kearney was primarily driven by necrophiliac urges. Patrick's most consistent MO was to shoot his victims in the back of the head when they didn't even know they were in danger, then commit acts of necrophilia with their still warm corpses. He also sometimes savagely beat their dead bodies. Maybe those victims were the ones that reminded him of those bullies. 
And towards the end, when he'd refined his killing process after being inspired by the work of another serial killer, he would dismember his victims, drain their body parts of blood, put those parts in trash bags, and throw them away like they were literally just garbage. Their remains would generally be found near the side of some road. Unfortunately for Patrick, but fortunately for his victims' families, law enforcement, and for potential future victims, he used trash bags from where he worked. Uncommon commercial-grade trash bags. And he left behind hair and carpet fibers that were eventually traced back to him thanks to him killing the wrong victim, a victim who was romantically linked to his partner, David, a victim who people knew was last seen heading to Patrick's house. It seems that his romantic relationship with Dave was the trigger that led to the murder's beginning and then jealousy over the same relationship got him caught. Had he never dated Dave, would he have ever became a serial killer? Would someone else just have provided the spark to light the same killing fire? Don't know. When Patrick turned himself in in 1977, he quickly confessed to 28 murders and then he'd soon confess to four more. Guessing somebody who kills that many people didn't need a certain relationship to send him in that direction. He almost immediately led the police to several potential gravesites for people they didn't even know were dead. He identified the remains of bodies they'd found that they'd labeled as John Doe's. They knew he was a killer. They had no idea how prolific he had been, though. When they first charged him with murder, they had no idea he was one of the freeway killers. Today, we meet the least known of the freeway killers, Patrick Wayne Kearney, child killer, necrophiliac, and a man still alive today in prison on another serial killing True crime, Monsters Do Walk Amongst Us edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, hot, hunky father daddy, covered in olive oil. Mm-mm. The Suck Dungeon Dungeon Master, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, I love you, Lucifina. Praise be to the bestest boy, Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. Uh, 2023 Wet Hot Bad Magic Summer Camp tickets are now open for sale to all. Just go to badmagicmerch.com, click the banner at the top of the page to buy a ticket to what is going to be such a memorable and amazing time this September. Truly hope to see you there. Uh, also, thank you to all those who came to the Spokane, Washington, Burn It All Down stand-up shows. Hot damn! You were awesome crowds. Hoping I had just as much fun in Boise. Uh, recording this in advance. Kansas City, St. Louis coming up this weekend. Tickets might not be left for those shows. All tour tickets available at dancummins.tv. Uh, see you soon. Sacramento, tickets available for the second added show. Denver, tickets available for San Antonio and Dallas. Denver may be sold out. And, uh, and one more thing before we really uh, get into shit today. Heed, time suckers. An epic collection awaits you. Now in store at badmagicmerch.com lies the official Time Suckin' Dragons collection. On your merchandise quest, you will encounter a classic vintage dragon tee featuring a dyed 20 time suckin' three colors. An epic campaign blanket to keep you warm on your quests. A magical drinking vessel commonly known as a mug and a spiral-bound collection of parchment for campaign note-taking. The official Time Suckin' Dragons collection awaits. So that's pretty fun. Uh, Also, reminder for the Killer Valentine's uh, collection. Also fun. Incredible Valentine's card set featuring eight of our top serial killer sucks. 
Each set includes 16 cards with eight unique illustrated designs on foldable cardstock. I got a couple right by me. If you're not feeling the cards, how about some premium thick postcards? These things are so cool. Art Warlock really uh, put a lot of uh, put a lot of sweat into these ones. Uh, we got a little Andre C. We got a little Ricky R. These are so fucked up. Eddie K. We got a little Freddie Freddie uh, W. Rosie W. Oh, even little little Jeffrey D. It's ridiculous. Um, yeah, and if you're not feeling the cards, you can uh, get some thick postcards, and we also have fun 5x7 wooden framed or unframed mini canvases, and t-shirt options. So many options! And now, Patrick Kearney. Not Carney. Uh, last week in the week's, uh, preview, in the last episode's preview for this episode, uh, I guess Carney. And I blame Carney, Nebraska, for doing that, a small city with the exact same spelling as this guy. K-E-A-R-N-E-Y. Uh, it's in the exact same country, but pronounced very differently by most people. Uh, but also even an attorney who worked on this dude's case pronounced his name as Carney over and over in a recent documentary. Also heard it pronounced by several people in documentaries as Kearney. One of those annoying things about living in the great melting pot of the United States, all that melting from people all over the world has led to so much disagreement when it comes to how to say the fucking words over here. Anyway, I just needed to get that out of my head. And now let's get to know this disturbing front butt dump of a meat sack. All righty, true crime fans, time to complete the trifecta of the three Southern California serial killers whose crimes were all attributed at one point, uh, well, several points actually, uh, to the possible work of one fictitious killer, the freeway killer. But there was no single freeway killer. And that was a nickname assigned by investigators in the media in Southern California in the 70s and early 80s to whoever was killing and sexually assaulting young men and boys and often leaving their bodies alongside the area's highways and freeways between the San Fernando Valley and the Mexican border. But the freeway killer would turn out to be three serial killers active in the same area, targeting a predominantly homosexual male population and active at overlapping times. Uh, first, we met William the Freeway Strangler, Bonin, Billy Gutterballs. Driver of the infamous death van, uh, active from May of 1979 to June of 1980. Not very long, but damn, he was very busy uh, when he was killing. The subject of Suck uh, 263 was convicted of killing 14 men and boys, but may have actually killed 21. He was executed by lethal injection inside the gas chamber at San Quentin, uh, that state prison, on February 23rd, 1996, at the age of 49. Uh, Next, we met the subject of Suck 309, Randy the Scorecard Killer Kraft. Mr. Fucking Butt Socks himself, actor from 1971 to 1983, suspected of killing 67 people. Yes, 67. Uh, convicted of killing 16, and he is still alive at 77 years old, being held at San Quentin. Today's subject had a longer murderous reign than both of those sick fucks. Patrick Wayne Kearney, aka the trash bag killer, was convicted of killing 21 boys and men. Some think he killed closer to 43. Uh, He quickly confessed to 28 murders after turning himself in, also later confessed to four additional murders in a letter to LA authorities, bringing his confessed total up to 32. seems like everyone familiar with this case believes he killed at least that many men and boys. And he was active from 1962 all the way to 1977. But his crimes in the 1960s didn't have a consistent MO. There weren't as many of them. Uh, So it didn't lead investigators to think that his victims were being killed by a serial killer. The majority of his victims killed between 1975 and 1977. 
like uh, Billy Gutterballs, he went on a fucking terror spree the last year or so of his free life. Uh, while the MO of Kraft and Bonin was similar, Kearney's MO uh, would be quite different than the other two freeway killers. Uh, the only things that connected the killings of all three men was the sexual violation of some of the corpses, the tendency to leave some of their dead bodies near highways and freeways, and the victims being male. But it really stops at that. Uh, you know, same area, obviously. Both Randy Crafts and William Bonin were more brutal to their victims than Kearney. Crafts struggled or drugged, excuse me, and brutally tortured the teens and men he killed, often castrating them, burning them, biting them, destroying their fucking eyeballs, uh, shoving so many horrible objects like tree branches into their asses before strangling them. And he often shoved socks into their butts to minimize the bleeding as he drove them to wherever he wanted to dump their bodies. And many times he just pushed their dead bodies out of his car and just fucking kept on trucking. Uh, Kraft horrifically tortured his victims. My God, that episode was fucking brutal. Uh, Bonin was also a complete fucking savage, like Kraft. Also uh, liked to strangle his victims. He was uh, quite fond of torture, including occasional genital mutilation, even complete castration. Like Kraft, he raped his victims while they were still alive, often bit and savagely beat them. Unlike Crafter Bonin, he uh, for sure worked with a variety of comp- accomplices as well. Uh, people he lured into his sick fucking game. One of those accomplices is in prison with Kearney today. Kearney comparatively was, and I hate to use this word when associated with him, but uh, kinder than Kraft and Bonin. Maybe uh, less horrific is better. At least he didn't torture his many victims. He would uh, beat them and sexually assault them, but not while they were alive. His MO was to shoot the victims, commit necrophilia with their bodies, and then in his later killings, drain his victims of blood, uh, typically in the bathtub, dismember them before dumping the bodies along highways between LA and the Mexican border, often in trash bags. And that, of course, led to that nickname of the trash bag killer, sometimes also called the trash bag murderer. Uh, Patrick was uh, not above killing a much younger victim than either Kraft or Bonin. So in that way, he was more cruel. Uh, His youngest victim was just five years old. Kraft's youngest suspected victim was 13 and Bonin's youngest known victim was 17. Uh, With all three of those fuckers active at some point during the 70s, the 70s were a real rough time in Southern California for a a lot of young men and boys, especially gay men and boys. Not all of the victims of the freeway killers were gay, but many were. As As Elizabeth Engstrom wrote in an article titled Patrick W. Kearney, the trash bag murderer, Shit uh, hard, often, for a gay dude, guy, boy, in 70 decade. Not fun for death. Many rape, some ball lost, much pain. Homophobic, bad. But branch, more bad, penis moval. Most bad, then or that. So I should have mentioned that uh, Elizabeth is a terrible writer. She's uh, she's barely literate. Uh, no, just kidding. She didn't write that. <laughs> I would love that if somehow a journalist only able to write at that level is able to get a job as a journalist. Uh, she wrote... The decade of the 70s was a confusing time for young people, particularly young gay people. The AIDS epidemic hadn't been named as a serious threat yet. The popularity of gay bathhouses, gay bars, and anonymous sex and parks, public toilets and parties was at its frenzied zenith. Well, hail Lucifina! Everyone's getting fucking action! But then, you know, it gets not as fun. Uh, Gays were coming out with a vengeance, and they were finally taking what they considered their rightful freedoms in the wake of the free love 60s in San Francisco's hate Ashbury. Young people headed to California in droves. Gay teens were drawn there as if to Mecca. Misunderstood youths ran away from their unsympathetic parents, stuck out their thumbs, and headed to their promised land. And they didn't necessarily find what they were looking for. Many of them ended up as boy prostitutes, trying to eke out a meager living. According to Dennis McDougall in his book Angel of Darkness, 
During the 70s and early 80s, more than 100 young hitchhikers caught rides on the streets and freeways of Southern California and didn't live to tell about it. And uh, he doesn't specify male there, but uh, I'm 99% sure based on what Dennis was writing about in general that he was talking about just over 100 dudes. Uh, Dennis's name sounds familiar. We cited him from that book often in the Randy Craft Suck, Angel of Darkness, uh, the definitive source on Craft. He also was a Southern California journalist who covered a lot of Kearney's crimes and subsequent arrests. Uh, talked about Kearney a fair amount in that same book as well. Man, over a hundred fucking hitchhikers meeting their tragic deaths. How, how especially terrible for these victims, much like a lot of uh, female sex worker and or hitchhiker victims from the same era, uh, you know, fleeing tragic home lives to make it to a place that was supposed to be fun, accepting, supposed to be more safe than back home and, you know, many ways, a place full of sunshine and dreams, good music, good vibes, the beach and Hollywood. Instead of finding some wonderful escape, some safe haven where they could try and be who they really were, they instead were met with rape, torture, and death. Many young hitchhikers would get their last ride from Kearney, and many of their remains would never be found. Uh, towards the end of his murder spree, uh, many of the remains not found in any kind of recognizable state, at least. According to Riverside Deputy DA Dan Bakalski, one of the first officers to interview Kearney after he turned himself in, the dismemberment of his victims was, quote, done expertly. And in the opinion of a pathologist, the person who uh, did it had a lot of practice. There were no signs of hesitation. The killer had training on how to dismember a body like a professional butcher. Patrick was not some out-of-control maniac. He was calm, calculated, patient, more so, I think, than the other so-called freeway killers. I think his attention to detail, his patience, and again, maybe uh, not the best word considering who he was and what he did, uh, professionalism, up until the murder that put him on law enforcement's radar is what allowed him to kill for a longer period of time than either Bonin or Kraft. Okay, enough teasing this story out. Let's tell it already. Let's suck it. Balls deep. Let's fucking go. Who was Patrick Wayne Kearney, the trash bag killer? How did he become a serial killer? Who were his victims? Let's find out in today's Time Suck timeline. Right after, and I bet most of you are waiting for me to say that, uh, today's mid-show, but really still pretty early in the show, sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P com slash time suck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. 
So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Again, wasn't even close to mid-show this break today. Always so appreciated. Uh, And now a big, long, uninterrupted timeline to be entertained by and, of course, be horrified and disgusted by. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Patrick Wayne Kearney was born on September 24th, 1939, at a maternity cottage in Los Angeles. The exact location is not given in any sources. Uh, And if you're wondering, what the fuck is a maternity cottage? Well, that's exactly what I asked myself when I came across that information. 
And I think the answer actually tells us exactly where Patrick was born. I did a web search of maternity cottage and the only direct hits that came up from that exact phrasing all pointed to one place, a place actually called the maternity cottage that used to exist on the 100 block of South Utah Street, just across the LA River from Little Tokyo, uh, that neighborhood of downtown Los Angeles. Not a lot of info on it. It Sounds like it was a clinic that exclusively catered to expectant uh, mothers and newborn babies. What I first pictured for reasons only truly known to my subconscious was some kind of Hans and Gretel witch's cottage out in the woods. I guess that's what my brain thinks of when I hear an association between cottages and children. Patrick was the oldest of three sons born to parents George and Eunice Kearney. Uh, Three sons, no daughters, it seems. Uh, Patrick's father was an LAPD officer and his mother was a homemaker. And I wonder if his dad being LAPD helped him at all when it came to his later murders, right? Did he Did his dad talk about work at home? Did his dad work murder cases? Did his dad ever talk about murder cases involving my dad? Where was he during all this? Uh, But for real, uh, did he talk about how sloppy some criminals were with leaving behind evidence that made, you know, uh, uh, Patrick want to avoid making the same mistakes? Seems like that that, that could give you an advantage and Patrick would be more careful than the average serial killer, uh, you know, of his day to avoid leaving behind evidence. The Kearney family lived somewhere in South Central Los Angeles while Patty Cakes was born. Patrick's little brother, Michael Irwin Kearney, was born July 19th, 1944. Would go on to serve 26 years in the Navy, then work with distinction in the aerospace industry. He would marry a, a woman named Mary Lucille. They'd have a son named Michael Scott, just like from the office, and daughter named Stephanie Suzanne. And how did he get along with Patrick? Not a clue. Doesn't seem like he's ever spoken publicly about him. And Patrick doesn't seem to have ever spoken about Michael or his other brother. I feel like Patrick was the black sheep in his family by a long ways, did not remain close with many family members after he became an adult. Patrick's younger brother, youngest, excuse me, Chester Ross Kearney, born on August 28th, 1944, 1945. My God. All I could dig up on Chester was that he invented the precursor to Bitcoin and lives on an island he owns in the South Pacific. Uh, He also wrote the screenplay to Back to the Future, and invented the llama. He invented cryptocurrency, back to the future, and llamas. But not a lot has been written about him. Uh, no, I don't think he invented shit. I don't know anything about him past his name. Uh, according to Dennis McDoodle's book, Angel of Darkness, Patrick grew up in a middle-class family. Patrick told Dennis that his mom was caring, but that his father uh, worked a lot and was disinterested in raising a family. Uh, and that's about all he said he, uh, to Patrick uh, to uh, McDougal. He didn't say much. Didn't seem to speak much in general about his personal history. Uh, but he did later share some additional family details with Canadian-American journalist and true crime author Nadia uh, Fazzani. Maserati Monica Baluccia, Sofia Petrillo, a golden girl Antonio Banderas, that's a spice of meatball, a saludo. Sorry, that was Italian for based on her last name and look. Uh, I think uh, Nadia is at least partially Italian, and I have a good eye for that, you know. Anyway, Nadia wrote about some exchanges with Patrick Kearney in her 2015 book, Through the Eyes of Serial Killers. Interviews with Seven Murderers. Kearney wrote letters to Nadia, gave a little more info about his childhood, but who knows how much of it we should believe because super weird, Patrick combined details of his childhood with the childhood of David Brocourt, who started corresponding with him in 2010. Why would he fucking do that? That is so strange. Uh, I guess when you're in prison, you know, for life, for being a serial killer, a killer of children, even, uh, and a necrophiliac, are you really worried about someone also finding out that you're a liar? Also, once Nadia corresponded with him sometime in the early 2000s, it seems, he'd already been in prison for over 20 years. Maybe he was, I don't know, bored. Maybe he just felt like fucking with somebody to amuse himself. Uh, if you're going to do that, 
uh, best like Kearney did to, uh, to pick someone's childhood who's not well known. I'm not sure how she figured out uh, how uh, Kearney was bullshitting her. Might not get called out if you merge your childhood with a childhood of just some random non-celebrity your social circle doesn't know, but uh, probably gonna get called out pretty quick if you're you know lazy and you're like, yeah, growing up in Detroit was rough, man. Dad wasn't around, you know, mom and I fought constantly. I was one of the only white kids in my neighborhood and I got my ass beat almost every day. But then I found hip hop, started freestyling, you know, started winning some rap battles. Finally realized that if I wanted to create a new life for myself, I needed to lose myself in the music. The moment you own it, you better never let it go. You only get one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. This opportunity comes once in a lifetime. Man, dude, shut the fuck up. That's Eminem's life, you dipshit. And his lurks. All right, that's probably not going to work out. Anyway, Brocourt was somehow put in touch with Fazani and shared which parts of the story were his. So she picked out those parts where Patrick was, uh, you know, just bullshitting and only left in his parts, which I'll be sharing. Uh, but still, since he definitely did lie about a lot of aspects of his childhood that weren't his, that were this other dude's, can you really trust the rest of the details to be his? Might just be somebody else's life he's taking these things from. Okay, properly disclaimed now. I just thought that was so odd. Here we go. Patrick grew up in a more musical family than I would have ever expected for whatever reason. When he was a very young child, his abusive father put him in a band with some brothers I didn't mention before, uh, Tito, Marlon, Jackie, and Jermaine, uh, the Kearney Five. And when little Patrick messed up musically, ho his dad, Joe Jackson, was quick with the belt. And the Jackson, I mean Kearney Five, soon started performing on the Chitlin circuit, and they quickly became the first group to debut with four consecutive number one hits on the Billboard One Hot, Hot 100 chart, including ABC and I'll Be There. No, of course, that's the uh, start of Michael Jackson's childhood. Uh, Patrick Kearney, as he told Nadia, no bullshit now, was an introverted and lonely child. Said he wasn't allowed to play with other kids because his father didn't allow it. Claimed he was often locked up in the basement until the age of five. Said he had no books or toys, writing, I spent my time in my bed, swaying back and forth, a sign of obsessive compulsive disorder. I felt like I was being rocked or sitting on a rocking horse. I hummed to myself and lived in a fantasy world, the only bulwark against my oppressive universe. I did not stop this behavior until I was 18, and I wonder now if I was not an autistic child. Patrick also said he often wet the bed, and that this enraged his father, who, when he wet the bed, would pull him out of the bed by his feet and or threaten to put him in jail. So did that happen? I mean, I guess it could have. Maybe his dad really was a fucking prick, considering who he became. You know, certainly can't rule that out with Patrick. Uh, Patrick's father supposedly lied about his son's age and sent him to elementary school a year early. Patrick said he was always younger than his classmates, and that they never really liked him. This is a big theme with Patrick. Nobody likes him. Said when he tried to go to other children's houses, the parents disliked him, or at least he felt they did. Why was no one liking him? Was he just a super creepy kid? Uh, He also said his abnormal behavior, specifically snatching people, started pretty damn young. Said one day uh, his class was supposed to go to the movies, but he wasn't allowed to go because, you know, he'd done something bad, according to a teacher. So Patrick was sent home. And then on the way home, he's walking home. He sees a three-year-old boy on the sidewalk. He said he'd heard his father and his police friends talk about child abduction. So Patrick decided to take the boy to his grandma's house through a window. Later saying at five years old, I had kidnapped a kid. Then he shot that kid in the back of the head, sexually assaulted the corpse, threw his chopped up remains in a trash bag, tossed the bag in an alley, and then went home, headed down to his basement lair and watched him leave it to Beaver. You know, gee, Wally, why do you think I did all that nasty stuff? No, no, thank God, no. Now, he wasn't quite the, uh, as monstrous yet. Just fucking weird. Sounds like this kidnapping was uh, resolved with no police involvement. Uh, the kid was not harmed. Just a weird five-year-old sneaking a toddler into his grandma's house. 
September of 1944, Patrick, about to turn five now, starts elementary school, just backing up a little bit, uh, in Montebello, California. Montebello, a city in Los Angeles County, located just east of East Los Angeles and southwest of the San Gabriel Valley, about eight miles east of downtown LA. Incorporated back in 1920, around 62,000 people live there now, but when little Patrick would have started school, would have been a lot smaller, between eight and 10,000. Back in the 1940s, that area was still very largely agricultural, known for its large-scale production of flowers, berries, fruits, and vegetables. Uh, Poinsettias, sometimes pronounced as poinsettias, easy flower nerds, uh, were a popular flower grown in the area. The area doesn't seem to be known uh, for any agriculture now or really for any one industry. The local hospital system, school district, and big commercial printing and a big commercial printing company are the top three employers. Uh, Patrick admits the produce and the flowers being grown in this much more rural area than now, uh, you know, much more rural than now area. Um, uh, actually, an area that was rapidly growing with a lot of people moving in is said to have earned decent grades throughout grade school, which seems to have been far below his academic potential. According again to Nadia's book, uh, Ciao Bella, Mozzarella Mario, Dada Baraducci. Ah, uh, no, it's not a book. <laughs> That's a book I mentioned. Uh, the psychiatrist who examined Patrick after his arrest noted that he had an IQ of 180. Yeah, did he? That's absurd. Well above the threshold of 160 for a literal genius. Smarter than Ed Mother Kemper, if true. Nadia does not cite who the psychiatrist was, so maybe valid, maybe not. I don't know who the fuck knows. Maybe Patrick, in addition to being a monster, uh, is a massive waste of tremendous potential as well. By the time he later finished school, Patrick, who learned to love languages, supposedly became fluent in Spanish, Japanese, and Chinese, according to some sources. I do question this as well, but but maybe. I mean, he, he would write letters from prison later in various languages, so I don't know. Maybe he is a master linguist like myself. Grazie a chicken parmesan egg plant of Bowser. I won't constantly do that today, by the way. Uh, Patrick said that he was thin and sickly during his childhood, and that he almost never retaliated when he was hit or a teacher, quote, dressed him down. And everyone's against him. Teachers dressed him down. Fucking parents hate him. His dad hates him. What's going on with little pastor? Uh, he may have truly been hit a lot. According to psychologist John McMullen, he states that as a kid, he was often beat up by others since he was small and called queer by his peers. Other sources reference him being called all sorts of other things related to being gay, uh, frequently bullied. I do think he was bullied. He pretty consistently has mentioned this. Uh, he was a small kid. He grew up to be five foot five and of a slight build. And he did seem to be introverted and possibly also pretty autistic. Asperger's maybe. I, I could for sure see him, uh, see him being a bully magnet. When Patrick told his parents about the bullying, they allegedly told him to stand on his own two feet and learn how to fight his own battles which was pretty common advice back then, I will say. Um, I got the same advice years later from my dad. Uh, when Patrick was eight years old in response to bullying, he said he began to have fantasies about killing people. And supposedly this is where it all began, right? Where things took a, a dark turn in his life, where the bus started heading towards serial killerville. The cool kids, the bullies beat up the strange little guy one too many times, called him names during one too many recesses. And now the murder fantasies began. Patrick would later say, as I mentioned to kick off this episode, when I was eight years old, I had a feeling I was going to do these things. Patrick never learned to handle confrontation in a healthy way. Instead, you know, again, true crime author Dennis McDougall, uh, he wrote, he shut his eyes tight and rehearsed how he would do it over and over again, skinning them like animals once he'd finished them. Ugh, skinning them. Okay, all right, sounds like he took his uh, vengeance fantasies uh, a little farther than I have. 
I have fantasized, uh, though, about killing people for, for quite some time. <laughs> and for the first time in a while, during this week's research, because I may have covered this, uh, you know, in an earlier episode already, I wondered, is it psychologically normal to have fantasies about killing people? And then I did a web search with that exact question, which I'm positive immediately was flagged and added to my NSA security file. Some agent probably got a push notification on their phone. Ah, oh, Cummins, he's up to some creepy shit on his laptop again. We better look into this. Uh, but seriously, is it normal to fantasize about killing people? Yeah, technically it is. According to criminal psychologists and, and other uh, experts, their studies back up this finding. Uh, Julia Shaw, uh, a, psycho- a psychological scientist at the University College London and best-selling author, it is not only normal to fantasize about murdering people, but it is also often healthy. The author of Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side, says that her research has determined that just about half the population fantasizes about murdering someone that they know or you know have known at some point or another. The most common imagined victims being ex-partners and uh, work superiors, you know, bosses. <laughs> Sounds about right. Uh, Shaw suggests that it's helpful to sometimes indulge in morbid, morbid ideations. Fantasizing has... Um, uh, you know, as opposed to, excuse me, acting on these thoughts counterintuitively to me, at least often eventually leads to empathy, even for those we hate tremendously. She says that not only does exercising terrible fantasies, fantasies force us to identify our own moral codes, but it also works out our muscles of reasoning, helping us actually think our way out of committing actual murder. So fuck yeah, bro. Thank you, Dr. Shaw. Uh, I will continue to take things much too far in my head. Hail Nimrod. Uh, but, you know, not everyone takes their murder fantasies in a healthy direction. Every once in a while, especially when the fantasy becomes sexualized in someone's head, like uh, someone like Patrick Kearney, often someone psychotic or sociopathic, you know, they start indulging in these fantasies for reals. And then they do so over and over again. Uh, is Patrick a sociopath or psychopath? Uh, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe not. He was never given that a diagnosis uh, that I know of. It never came up in sources. What does come up is how normal he seemed outside of what he did, of course. And sadly, you don't have to be a sociopath or a psychopath to be a serial killer. Uh, 1950, when Patrick is 11 or about to turn 11, about to turn 11, excuse me, he and his family moved just over 30 miles to the northwest to Rosetta, California. Or Reseda. There we go. I knew I was going to mess it up the first time. To Reseda. Reseda, California. Uh, It's a neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley, uh, region of LA, so inside the LA city limits. Uh, this is where the Karate Kid, Daniel LaRusso, Grasshopper, and his mother Lucille uh, moved to in the original 1984 Karate Kid film after he left New Jersey. And in Terminator 2, Judgment Day, this is where the infamous John Connor lives. Also referenced in a bunch of songs like Tom Petty's Free Falling and Soul Coffin's Screenwriter's Blues. Lesser known Soul Coffin song that I really like, actually. Uh, the Jason Lee TV series, My Name is Earl. Was filmed there. A whole bunch of shit has been filmed in uh, Reseda. A lot of cultural references for this place out there in the zeitgeist. Reseda was also a big agricultural center in the early 20th century. One of the nation's largest producers of lettuce in the 1930s for random trivia. And not devil's lettuce. You fucking dirty, junky, lawless, lazy, murderous hippies listing. Regular lettuce. Good lettuce. Wholesome lettuce. The Lord's lettuce. Uh, The area also grew a lot of lima beans, sugar beets, and randomly... Walnuts. You know, why not? Someone's got to grow walnuts, I guess. Not going to fucking magically make their way into delicious fudge after appearing out of thin air. Uh, in the 1940s, big farms started to be bought out by uh, residential developers in the area and it started to transition into a fast-growing L.A. suburb. The Kearneys, one of thousands of families to move there in the 1950s. 
Uh, it's no longer known for really anything other than being what looks like a nice, comfortable suburb north of the Santa Monica Mountains. I imagine when Patrick grew up there, it had a pretty mixed vibe as far as suburban and rural goes. Plenty of cul-de-sacs, but also plenty of farmland, walnut groves, so many lettuce trees growing the Lord's lettuce. I know lettuce doesn't grow on trees. Stop rolling your eyes at me. And a lot of undeveloped natural land uh, down around the Santa Monica Mountains. Must have had a fair amount of undeveloped land because while living here, Patrick would get a bit into hunting. I guess it doesn't specifically say that he did hunt around here, but it sure seems like he did. Uh, when Patrick was 13, his dad purchased a 22 caliber rifle for hunting and taught Patrick how to hunt, how to shoot. Told him that shooting a pig above and behind the left ear would shed the least amount of blood and ensure that the pig would die quick. And apparently Patrick made a, made a note of this killing technique and really kept it to heart. Is that even true though? Like why the left ear? I, uh, I did do another internet search. <laughs> now I looked up, quote, where is the best place to shoot a pig to have it bleed the least? Uh, and I looked up variations of that question, which I'm sure sent more push notifications to my dedicated NSA agent. What the fuck is Cummins doing? We have to arrest him. He, he, he's, a, he's a time bomb. Uh, if those queries didn't get a notification sent, my next question surely did, which was, will someone bleed much if you shoot them behind <laughs> the left ear with a 22 caliber weapon? <laughs> that's when the agent was like, that's fucking it. I'm going to Coeur now. I just hope the bodies aren't stacked too deep by the time I get there. Uh, Kearney loved himself a 22 caliber weapon, both pistol and rifle. And according to random firearm experts on the web, 22 caliber bullets are a popular choice for assassins slash hitmen because they will often penetrate a victim's skull, like with a headshot, you know, like a, especially up close, uh, but not come out the other side and therefore actually not make a very big mess. Strong enough to penetrate the skull once, but then often, you know, sort of ping pong around inside a person's skull a bit instead of barreling out the other side, which will also kill someone faster by mangling their brain instead of carving just one path through it or can kill them faster. And there is debate online about how much mangling these bullets can do in this way, but experts do seem to agree that if you have the right firearm, a headshot with a 22, it's just not going to make a, a big mess uh, like a like a larger caliber will do. Uh, Patrick will later use techniques like this to kill other animals without supervision, do a little practice before he gets to people. And at least according to some researchers from Radford University, started to find pleasure in rolling around in their blood and guts. So that's not good. Patrick, as he falls in love with shooting various animals in the head, perfecting a killing technique that satisfies him, maybe shooting them some more, maybe gutting them, maybe rolling around their fucking blood, whatever. Also starts to have fantasies about having sex with someone he has complete control over. And that is really not good. Very terrible combo combined with the other stuff. Also, how does his parents not realize he was doing some real sick shit, like rolling around in guts, if that's true? How are his clothes not getting so bloody? Or, or, or was he getting naked and doing that and then wiping himself down with rags or something and hopping in the shower? I mean, if his family knew about any of this, I guess they would probably never publicly talk about it. Uh, they never seemed to publicly talk about him at all, just ever. Uh, Patrick will also later tell psychologist C. Wright Anderson, yep, his fucking name is C. Wright, don't meet a lot of C. Wrights, uh, that at age 13, in addition to all this shit, he fucked the family dog and then continued fucking dogs into his late teens. Uh, <laughs> Patrick will later say about this, I, <laughs> I just find this quote so funny in this context. I went through a period of frustration through my late teens and I was slow to grow. I wanted to get even with people. Um, what? Like, what? What does fucking dogs have to do with getting even with any people? Like, that is just such 
a very weird place to go to in your head. Just, oh, shit, you done did it, Billy Anderson. You have stuffed me in a trash can for the last time, motherfucker. Oh, when I get home, oh, holy shit, am I going to fuck my dog? <laughs> oh, boy, you just wait. You just wait till I get home and wear up my dog's butthole after you push me too many times. Also, uh, anyone else really wondering what kind of dog he had? Sources don't say, and it drives me fucking crazy. I mean, are we talking about a 40-pound dog or a 100-pound dog? Pomeranian, Rottweiler. Chihuahua, Great Dane. Full penetration, just sneaking in the tip. What's going on here? Uh, Years later, Patrick will recant this confession. And this is also weird how he does this. In a letter to Dennis McDougal, he writes, there are some things that I don't want to talk about. Things that are personal, embarrassing, or none of anybody's business. When people insisted, I either misled them or they misled themselves. For example, when Dr. Anderson asked what I did with that dog, I refused to answer. The truth would have been embarrassing and humiliating. More so because the doctor had another guy in the room listening. Dr. Anderson was determined to have an answer. He said, did you do such and such? And I said, yes, just to get away from the subject. If you think about it, think about it. The act that Dr. Anderson described with the dog sounds highly improbable. I've never tried it, but I'd be willing to bet that most dogs, especially a large, strange male, would bite you before you got started. Might not even be physically possible. You might consult a vet or other dog expert about that, or you might approach a large, strange male dog with a banana and see what he does. Ha ha. That's, that's his words with a banana, not mine, just for the record. I think you see my point. In fact, your own pet might bite you, even if you only used a pencil. <laughs> so should we believe his original confession or him recanting it? Because like, to me, it's just so weird when he says this one part of that, when he says the truth would have been embarrassing and humiliating, right? The, the tr- what? What did he do with a dog that was more embarrassing and humili- humiliating than fucking? Like, I'm so confused. Like, am I reading that incorrectly? I mean, did he just say that, that he admitted that he just said he fucked the dog to avoid embarrassment because the truth was worse? What, what was the truth? Did he let the dog fuck him? Did he blow the dog? Did he eat the dog? Did, did he toss the dog salad? That, it had to have been one of those, right? I, I think, I don't know, in my gut, I think he tossed the dog salad. That's what I want to believe. I think he used to lick dogs' buttholes, you know, because dogs are used to having their, they're used to having their buttholes licked. And I bet he jacked off when he did it. And that was too embarrassing to admit, humiliating. Patrick Kearney, dirty dog butthole licker. Print it, fact. Uh, Patrick will also deny all of his murders when corresponding with McDougal, saying, you might find evidence that other people were involved in my case. You could look at confiscated photographs and films that the police have. They should have obtained quite a few while investigating other cases similar to mine. You might find photos of some of the alleged victims of my case. You should especially look for movies showing live torture or evisceration. Okay, he is for sure lying here. He's just this guy... He does lie a bunch. You'll realize this by the end of the episode. Uh, He confessed to his murders. A whole bunch of murders. Confessed. uh, Quickly. And led investigators directly to bodies that they didn't even know were out there. How could he have done that if he didn't commit these murders? Or at least help someone else commit these murders? Aye, aye, aye. Uh, 1953, Patrick starts junior high. Back in the timeline now at Diane St. Leachman Special Education Center in Reseda, Very interesting to me. According to the web, this is a school for students with special needs. I don't know for a fact that it was back then. There's not a lot of info on it out there. I wasn't going to call them up and say, hey, uh, a serial killer went to your school. 
uh, like, uh, you know, over half a century ago. Do you know if he was special needs? But according to, yeah, according to the web, uh, you know, it is. And uh, if he was a genius, again, according to the web, now it is. But like, you know, why would he go to a school for kids with special needs? But I guess, you know, maybe he really was autistic or something similar. Uh, he said he experienced bullying at this school as well. Around this time, his dad, George Kearney, leaves the LAPD uh, after so random, getting a job as a salesman at a travels agency at a travel agency in a very small town in Arizona. The Kearneys now briefly moved to Wilcox, Arizona, and Patrick enrolls uh, in Wilcox Middle School. And Wilcox is a little town of just over 3,000 people, about 80 miles east of Tucson, in an area mostly known for wine production now. Back in the 50s, it was, you know, even smaller and largely known for cattle, you know? Uh, does not seem like a place that would have had a big travel agency business back in 1953. Doesn't seem like George uh, killed it in the Wilcox travel game because the family moved to Redondo Beach, California later that same year. Not sure if George got back into law enforcement, stayed with the travel business, or tried something else. Man, Redondo Beach, that is a lovely place. Down in the South Bay of greater LA, uh, home of the Redondo Beach Pier. It's very cool. Redondo Beach Incorporated in 1892, almost exactly 30 miles south of Reseda. Just over 70,000 people living in the city of Redondo Beach today, and a lot of them are doing very well for themselves. They could sell their homes and make enough on the equity to buy another house outright in many other parts of the country and still have a big old nest egg to live off of. It's a city of surfing and beach volleyball and lots of expensive real estate. Uh, the Beach Boys reference Redondo Beach and Surfing USA, parts of Point Break filmed in Redondo Beach, Honestly, Redondo Beach seems to me like a pretty idyllic place to spend your high school years. And actually, I uh, was friends with a guy down in LA who did grow up in Redondo Beach, and uh, he said it was fucking epic. Uh, not sure what high school he went to here. Source after source just does not say. He must have just mentioned in interviews that he went to high school in Redondo Beach, but never specified which school. Uh, in 1957, 17-year-old Patrick graduates from whatever high school he went to, and then he and his family moved to Houston, Texas, where Patrick will maybe... Maybe sneaking a very brief marriage to an unnamed woman, according to multiple sources. Uh, no details are ever given. And I cannot find a mention of this in any marriage records. I doubt personally that this happened, despite it being in multiple sources. I think sources confused Patrick with his future romantic partner, David Hill, when it came to the Texas marriage part of their story. And we will meet David in just a second. I can't find a single quote from any interview of Patrick ever referencing a marriage or a quote from any investigator or journalist. It's just a statement that pops up in source after source with no reference as to where it comes from. Patrick soon returns to California, uh, living again in Redondo Beach, uh, starts taking engineering classes at El Camino Community College in Torrance, California. Uh, he will never get, uh, get a degree, but he will learn enough to get a job in the engineering field. 1958, before he does that, to the age of 18, Patrick joins the Air Force after he completes basic training, because he'll take classes off and on for many years. Uh, after he completes basic training, he'll supposedly uh, get stationed in Texas. Sources don't say which uh, base in Texas he'd be stationed at. Sadly, we had to rely more on old newspaper articles than a good biography with Patrick. There's no real good core source that has lots of you know, very you know specific details that we were able to find. Um, less written on him than has been written about the other two freeway killers by, by quite a bit. 1960s, still in Texas, Patrick, now 20, meets an 18-year-old man named David Hill from Lubbock, falls in love. Hill was a looker, especially compared to Pat. He was a hot, ripped, olive oil-drenched daddy. No, but Hill was a lot taller and a lot more muscular than Kearney, also married to his high school sweetheart, Linda. After dropping out of high school, Hill had enlisted in the Army but did not last long. He quickly received a medical discharge for an undisclosed personality disorder 
presumed by researchers to be homosexuality since the military considered that a mental illness at that time, and that is how they would often code it. Patrick and Dave soon became friends and lovers, maybe not in that order. Let's learn a bit more about David. Don't know a ton about him, but we know a little more. Yeah, born in Lubbock, uh, December 23rd, 1942, the seventh of nine children. His family was described in newspaper articles after his arrest as being poor and devoutly religious. And Patrick and David, quite the contrasting pair. Dennis McDougal uh, wrote about uh, them uh, two years after their arrest. Um, or sorry, yeah, yeah. So, I'm sorry, wrote about them at the time of their arrests. Excuse me. In black horn rim glasses, black slacks, white short sleeve skirt, a shirt and tie, 37-year-old Patrick Kearney looked more like a life insurance salesman who made house calls than an engineer for Hughes Aircraft. His close-cropped black hair, together with exaggerated ears that stuck out, Clark Gable-style from the side of his head, gave him a boyish appearance. Ten years earlier, he might have been compared to Jerry Lewis. Ten years later, to Pee Wee Herman. So he was, uh, sorry, this, he's describing them, <laughs> describing them right after their arrest, but he's writing about this uh, several years later. And then he wrote about David at six foot two, he towered over his spindly roommate and lover, yet Hill was outwardly the more docile of the pair. He couldn't hold a job, so he kept house with Kearney uh, while Kearney went off to work each day. Sorry about that little confusing bit for a second, but I cleared it up. Uh, 1961, Patrick received an honorable discharge from the Air Force, and now Patrick and David moved to California to Long Beach, just 15 miles from Patrick's old stomping grounds in Redondo Beach. According to a later LA Times article, Patrick tried to encourage David to go back to school, and David would eventually earn a high school equivalency certificate. The two, while they will date on and off, all the way until uh, Patrick's much later arrests, actually both of their arrests, they will never have a real stable relationship. It seems like David always had one foot out the door. May have frequently used Patrick for money and a place to stay when he didn't have other options. That is me speculating. Just based on details I came over, came across, uh, Patrick and David frequently got into heated arguments, not speculating about that. Even fights that would uh, lead to David taking off for a few days at a time, sometimes staying with friends, sometimes hooking up with someone else for a one night stand or a brief fling, or even moving completely the fuck out of town, getting his own place. Sometimes he'd head all the way back to Texas or even farther away. According to McDougal, David once uh, was arrested for vagrancy in Louisiana while he was dating Patrick. 1962, David leaves Patrick for a long time, goes on a hitchhiking trip across the U.S., and eventually gets back together with his wife, Linda. What the fuck is going on there? Who takes back someone after that person not only leaves them, but leaves them for someone of a different sex across the country? Come on, Linda! Have some respect for yourself. Poor Linda, guessing she was, uh, you know, just young and dumb and very much in love. Like so many of us at one point or another, right? Just part of the human condition. Uh, while David is off finding himself, Patrick makes a little extra cash when he becomes a Doberman breeder. He opens a business called Pat Kearney's DTF Dobermans. His new business slogan was Pat Kearney's DTF Dobermans never get sent home with a mutt, always get the hottest, sweetest butt. And then in smaller print below that slogan, it would read satisfaction guaranteed. Pat satisfies himself with all dogs before finding their hot, soft, hot, soft butts, a happy boner filled home. Or. Maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe Pat starts taking history classes at California State University instead with his new free time. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, yeah. And he, uh, and he also starts murdering. He is furious that David has left him. The breakup leaves him feeling angry. Uh, his mind, you know, like hurt. His mind filled again with the uh, old murder fantasies he used to have as a kid when he was bullied. And these fantasies at some point have now become sexualized. They've started to get harder and harder for him to ignore. 
1962 will be the year that 22-year-old Patrick Kearney will later confess to murdering his first victim. He'll never be charged for the first four murders he confessed to committing and seven others. Authorities just didn't have enough evidence for some of these murders outside of his confession. Uh, There were jurisdictional and taxpayer cost considerations. Uh, They had plenty of evidence for so many other murders he also confessed to that there was no need to keep tacking on to the official body count. Why some of these weren't, uh, you know, attributed to him. Uh, The the first victim was an unnamed 19-year-old man, according to Pat's confession, who accepted a ride on his motorcycle. Pat will later confess that he was from either Louisiana or Oklahoma. Patrick said he drove him to a deserted area in the spring of 1962 outside of uh, L.A. a little ways, then shot him in the back of the head when he wasn't paying attention, then sexually assaulted him, then mutilated the victim's body. How did he mutilate him? Well, if he made that clear, it doesn't seem to be public knowledge. He said he, he said he then dumped the man's body where he killed him in the vicinity of Indio, California, home of Coachella. Won't that be a fun thing to think about the next time you go to that big music festival? Uh, Patrick's second victim, also unknown, another John Doe, also killed in Indio shortly after the first victim. And the second victim was a 16-year-old cousin of the first victim. And Patrick killed him simply because he uh, saw, uh, saw him, this guy, the second guy, saw uh, Patrick give the first guy a ride on his motorcycle before vanishing. That poor family, right? Two cousins killed by this motherfucker back to back. Uh, Patrick killed this teen in the same place as the first victim and in the same way, he said. He was shot in the back of the head, sexually assaulted, uh, beaten after death. Patrick's third victim, an 18-year-old named Mike, also killed somewhere around Indio, California uh, sometime in 1962. Patrick said he shot Mike in the back of the head, dragged him out into the brush, uh, and then sexually assaulted his corpse. India was a very rural area at this time. Only about 10,000 people living there uh, in the town of Indio. And it was not connected at that time to the uh, populated sprawl of Palm Springs like it is now. Uh, Back then, there was a lot of quiet desert between the two places where you could do what Patrick did and not be seen. And a quick note, as we move further into the timeline, I'll only be listing the 22 additional murders most closely connected to Patrick. I'm going over the 21 murders he'll be convicted for. Also, the first four additional murders he confessed to committing that he was not charged for uh, due to a lack of evidence. You know, not enough evidence, thanks mainly to so much time lapsing between him and, you know, being caught or turning himself in and when and when he actually killed. Uh, he will confess in the end, as I said earlier, to 32 murders. So seven additional victims whom investigators knew uh, the least about. You know, perhaps they couldn't find the remains. Perhaps they were worried for other reasons about getting a judge to assign charges. Uh, I won't be wasting time getting into. We know almost nothing about them, sometimes not even their names. Just want you to know that in between the kills I'm listing going forward, this slight builded predator is even more active than he appears. Thanks to those seven additional murders. Okay, August of 1962, even without a college degree, Patrick gets a job working as an engineer for Hughes Aircraft. And David Hill moves back to the area and the two start dating again which corresponds to a big lull in Patrick's murders. Patrick and Dave initially live in different apartments, Patrick in Long Beach, David around a 30-minute drive away in Culver City. Uh, Romance is now going well again for Patrick, who clearly wasn't too shaken up over killing three guys and sodomizing their dead bodies. Work's also going well. He's able to hire a manager to help him run Pat Kearney's DTF Dobermans, never get sent home with a mutt, always get the hottest, sweetest butt. Uh, But for real, work is going well at Hughes Aircraft. Patrick's superior at Hughes will later say he was a diligent employee who never had any unusual absences and that his performance was outstanding. Meanwhile, David Hill is listed as an underachiever according to the LA Times and according to uh, other uh, investigators and journalists. They have variations of that to say about him. Uh, He worked several different jobs off and on, spent a lot of time at home. 
Uh, one of his jobs was literally described in the newspaper as towel boy at health spa. I mean, if that's, if he had that job at this time though, I mean, he's only 20. I mean, when I was 20 in Southern California, uh, you know, uh, if I, if I was living in the sixties, especially in Southern California, I would have fucking loved to be a towel boy. Right. Hell, Lucifina sounds like a great way to get some hookups. And it sounds like David did hook up a lot to the frustration of Patrick. Even when they're together, it was an open relationship. And David being a lot more handsome than Patrick, uh, got a lot more out of the openness than Patrick did, which perhaps fueled his murderous rage. On January 25th, 1963, Patrick Kearney quits his job at Hughes Aircraft, but then on April 4th is rehired and quickly promoted to senior research assistant. Must have made some kind of demand to his boss and his boss was like, get the fuck out of here. Absolutely not. But then once Pat was gone, you know, his boss was like, oh shit. Uh, Patrick actually did do a lot of stuff. He wasn't kidding when he explained why he should have been given a promotion. Damn it. We need to get Pat back. And also for some reason, the, the dogs around the office have been very depressed since he left. And their butts have been noticeably dirtier. I don't know. Uh, Patrick ended up earning $20,000 a year at Hughes Aircraft Co., according to a July 1977 LA Times article. And that was so much fucking money back then. 20 grand in 1977. Uh, it's equivalent to right around 100 grand a year in today's dollars. But that doesn't really do it justice since real estate, health insurance, et cetera, were a lot cheaper in 77 compared to wages adjusted for inflation now. I don't know what he made when he started in 1963, but I, but I bet it was pretty solid. You know, he's a 23-year-old guy, no degree, and he's fucking killing it. Poor choice of words for him, but you get it. 1964, Patrick and David move in together in Culver City. Probably, some sources say they moved to Culver City and uh, as far as together in 1967. Uh, 1966, David Hill finally officially divorces his poor wife, Linda. They'd obviously been separated for a while now. For the next few years, things seem to continue to go pretty well between Pat and Dave. But then things get rocky again, and they start having some bigger fights. And in September of 1968, Patrick Kearney murders his next victim, a man named George, another hitchhiker. He will not be charged for this killing either. When asked why he killed these first victims, Patrick said he just snapped. That it was nothing personal against his victims. It was a fantasy that had spiraled out of control. Kearney said that in many cases, he barely spoke to his victims before he killed them. He'll also later say that some of his victims reminded him of bullies from when he was in school, but he never specifically says which victims. I kind of wonder if he came up with the bully fantasy to elicit some kind of sympathy from people once his crimes became known, right? Still super fucked up, but it seems maybe less fucked up than killing people strictly to use them in some kind of necrophiliac fantasy. And maybe it was both. Maybe some victims did remind him of bullies. Maybe others just got him sexually excited. You know, he also kills a few people just to keep them from identifying him as a killer. So, you know, he could have killed for all sorts of reasons. Just like we all get cranky for various reasons, sometimes lash out for different reasons. I'm sure a lot of serial killers killed different victims for different reasons. Uh, George would be buried under the driveway of the home Pat and Dave lived in in uh, on Van Buren Avenue in Culver City. Patrick said he invited George into his apartment and uh, or home, and then shot him in the head with the 22 as soon as he walked in. Then he dragged his body to the bathroom, dismembered him, cut the body into pieces, put it in a box. Uh, after skinning the body with an exacto knife, blah, really playing around with the gore here. Also said he removed the bullet from the man's head with a hacksaw because he knew if the bullet was found, it could be traced back to his gun. Yee. And then he put this box with this guy's fucking skin, different pieces and everything, you know, under the driveway. George's remains would not be found until July until, excuse me, July of 1977 when Kearney directed the police to where he was buried after turning himself in. December 12th, 1969. Now Patrick purchases a house in Redondo Beach for $20,750. That is the equivalent of $162,000 today. 
Get the fuck out of here. That really shows how much farther money went back then. Holy shit. You couldn't buy an outhouse built on a toxic waste dump in Redondo Beach for 162 grand today. I I hopped on realtor.com right after coming across this info just to see what the cheapest family home in Redondo Beach was listed at. 799,000 for a tiny house, 958 square feet. Three bedroom, one bath on a lot that is 2,754 square feet. This house built in 1946. Doesn't look like it's been updated since 1946. Looks like shit, at least, at least on the exterior. Uh, the interior's been updated a little bit. But the yard, cracked, crumbling concrete or raw dirt. The next cheapest house, a three-bedroom, two-bath, even smaller, 920 square feet for $950,000. <laughs> but, uh, but it's advertised as being less than five miles from the beach. So it's practically beachfront. Just over four miles from the beach. Anyway, it blows my fucking mind that Patrick, even back in 1969, could get a house in Redondo Beach for 20 grand. Uh, June of 1971, David leaves Patrick again with nothing more than a goodbye note. And Patrick is furious and he wants revenge. So he heads out to find a dog to fuck and probably toss its furry salad. Hot damn, that dog will pay. Uh, no, he won't, of course, uh, do that to a dog. Well, I say, of course, this kind of story, who knows? Uh, he will take out his frustration with Dave on, you know, innocent strangers. Same story with so many of these murderous assholes. Someone pisses him off, right? Mother, an ex-girlfriend, a boyfriend, a bully, etc. And instead of dealing with that person or people, they go to kill strangers instead of, uh, you know, uh, instead, you know, strangers who just never did anything to them. June 26, 1971. Now 13 year old John Demchik, last seen alive, leaving his home in Inglewood to go to the beach. Man, 13, so young. Pat clearly didn't care. Just wanted to hurt someone. Kid, young adult, who fucking cares for this guy? Uh, John's parents quickly report him as missing. Over a year and a half later, Demchik's remains will be found by an archaeologist on February 9th, 1973, 15 miles from Calexico along Highway 98. Calexico is a California and Mexico border town of just around 40,000 people now just across, I mean, just right on the border you know, uh, with Mexico, but uh, just across the border from Mexicali. John was shot to death. Sources don't mention if his body was sexually violated or otherwise assaulted after death. Strongly assuming it was. This is the first murder Kearney will later be convicted for. Uh, September 22nd, 1973, the body of 17-year-old James Fletcher Barwick is found in the Escondido area. He had died within the past 24 hours. He was described as a transient from outside of San Diego County. According to the Times advocate, he may have come to Escondido from the L.A. area. James had multiple gunshot wounds to the back of his head. He was found by young people parked in the area at 10 p.m. Uh, in a dirt area 50 feet away from the San Pasqual Road. James had his birth certificate with him. Again, no mention of post-mortem assaults, but I mean, I would assume something happened. August 24th, 1974, five-year-old Ronald Dean Smith, five-year-old, goes missing from Lenox Park near his home. August 24th, 1974. 3 p.m. His mom, Joan O'Connor, told the police that Ronald went missing from Lenox Park, just blocks from LA's LAX, oh my God, from LA's LAX airport and about a block away from their house. He went to go play in the park. He was last seen playing with a little buddy uh, after he left his house around 2.30 p.m. He disappeared after he, just, after he and his little playmate had an argument and the playmate left. Over the next three days, deputies and volunteers searched eight square miles for Ronald. Joanne uh, spoke to uh, some TV reporters to ask the kidnapper to bring Ronald back saying, I just want to tell whoever he's with now that he's very important to me, that he's all I've got, that I love him so very much. I'm guessing Patrick saw the news coverage, didn't give a fuck. 
Police and uh, helicopters search for Ronald, you know, on, on the ground and with helicopters on August 25th, 1975. The next day, police search a house to house uh, across a two square mile area. August 27th, the police search Lennox, Inglewood, and parts of Hawthorne. Again, a month and a half later, a little boy's body is found on, on Saturday, October 12th, near Lake uh, Elsinore in Western Riverside County by youth gathering beer cans, about 80 miles from where Ronald went missing. Deputies say the boy was dead before he'd been dumped along Ortega Highway. He had been suffocated, not shot, no signs of sexual violation. A deviation for sure from Patrick's typical victim, but he confessed nonetheless. Why did he do it? Did little Ronald remind him of a schoolyard bully? You know, is that why he chose to kill him in such an intimate way? Suffocation? As far as I can tell, he has never said. Half a year later, April 13th, 1975, the body of 21-year-old Albert Rivera found 16 miles east of San Juan Capistrano. I would have been stuffed into a trash bag left near State Highway 74. And this is the beginning of the trash bag murders. Patrick, now 35 years old, has refined his killing process in an attempt to avoid getting caught. Why now? Well, uh, I will uh, share that detail in, in, in a bit here in the timeline. But he, uh, he, was, he was inspired by the work of another killer. Albert had been found shot in the head by a 22 caliber long rifle bullet. bullet. His body had been wrapped with heavy-duty nylon tape stuffed into an industrial trash bag. He'd been dead for 10 to 14 days uh, by the time he was found and sodomized post-mortem. Half a year later, October 29th, 1975, the police believe that 21-year-old Larry Gene Walters from Inglewood, California was killed by Patrick Kearney and also sodomized post-mortem. Larry Walters was a mechanic from Hawthorne. According to Larry's sister, Karen Fryer, he was mentally slow and had the mentality of an 8 to 10-year-old child. Larry's family was very protective of him because he was trusting and would believe anything anyone told him. Poor bastard. He went missing in late October 1975 after trusting the wrong guy, one of the worst guys. Larry worked at the end of the block where his sister Karen lived, and he'd been visiting his sister every day at noon when he went missing because he was waiting on some checks to be mailed to him after a car accident. The day Larry went missing, Karen had told him she would spend the night at uh, that he could spend the night at her house so he didn't have to hitchhike to work the next day. She went out to a Halloween party, uh, didn't get home until around 3 a.m. Lights and the TV were on when she walked in, and the house was uh, in a little disarray which was unusual because Larry was a very clean person. Karen still thought everything was fine though and that Larry had just gone out briefly. So she went to bed. When she got up, it looked like Larry had went to work. Extra sad, Larry's checks finally showed up that day, but Larry didn't show up at lunch like normal looking for them. So when Karen uh, you know, notices this, she walks to his shop and his boss says he hasn't shown up for work that day at all. Now she wonders if he had gone out to uh, hang out with some friends and maybe overslept. Uh, still doesn't call the police. Next morning, Karen's mother calls, says Larry hasn't shown up at her house either. Now the family's worried and Larry's mom files a missing persons report. Larry's family wouldn't find out what happened to him for almost two years. Not until Pat confesses in 1977. The police reached out to Karen, wanted to get her story to corroborate it with Patrick Kearney's confession. Patrick said he picked up Larry while he was hitchhiking, drove him to his Redondo Beach house, once inside, quickly shot him in the head and then did what he did. Told police he chopped Larry up, removed the blood as best he could in the bathtub, cleaned up his remains, put them in trash bags, then scattered them around the outskirts of the LA metro area. And his remains have never been found. Five months later, March 1st, 1976, 17-year-old Kenneth Eugene Buchanan runs away from his home in Lawndale. He was a junior at the Lloyd Continuation School. And his remains will be found a little over a month later, April 7th, near California Highway 98, 17 miles east of Calexico. Uh, Patrick later confessed to picking him up, shooting him in the back of the head, then again, sodomizing his remains. And then how extra fucking horrifying, while raping him, Kenneth woke up. Patrick panicked, grabbed his gun, shot him three more times. 
Yikes. Man, what a fucking terrible way to go. Three weeks later, March 21st, Patrick was back at it. He now murders 13-year-old Oliver Peter Molitor, whose body's never been found. Patrick confessed to picking him up while he was hitchhiking, said that they played doctor. Patrick then killed him, dismembered his body, put the remains in trash bags. And the body was buried in different places at the Palos Verdes landfill. Uh, Reports say Oliver was sexually assaulted while he was alive. uh, The doctor game. Don't specify exactly how, but we can get an idea based on someone else who he played doctor with in early 1977. Someone who lived to tell about it. Tony Stewart, author of the 2010 book, The Trash Bag Killer, excuse me, The Trash Bag Murderer, claims he lived near Patrick when he was a kid and survived a creepy encounter with him. Only known survivor, if this is true, of uh, an encounter with Patrick Kearney. I only say, uh, you know, if this is true, because I couldn't find any verification that Patrick said, yeah, this happened or not. But Tony said he used to mow Kearney's lawn for extra money when he was living with his family nearby in Redondo Beach. Tony is one of seven children in a low-income family. Their landlord helped them out by giving the kids jobs on the property and sometimes finding them other work. And this other work led him to working for Patrick, mowing his lawn for about four years in the late 60s and early 70s. Then they meet again when he's a young adult in early 1977. Tony said, I was 19 years old and fresh out of high school. The only thought of my mind besides searching for beautiful women, playing guitar and surfing waves was to attend as many wild parties as possible with my friends. Sounds like he was fucking doing it right back then. Tony said he had a car, but the engine didn't work. And so sometimes he would hitchhike when he couldn't get a ride. Super common in that area at that time. One evening during the height of Patrick's murder spree, he planned to hitchhike five miles home. A man in a truck pulled over. Tony recognized him as Patrick. They spent some time catching up. Tony said he was looking for someone to buy him beer. Patrick agreed, but said, now nah, you'll have to drink it in my house. You're a minor. I don't want you getting into any trouble. What a nice guy. Uh, a lot of states lowered their drinking ages in the 60s and 70s, below 21, but I guess California, not one of them. Uh, the two made it to Patrick's house around midnight. Patrick still lived in the same place where Tony used to mow the lawn. Patrick invited Tony to sit down, headed to the kitchen, asked Tony about his life, you know, some small talk. When Patrick comes back, Tony says he reached into a black doctor's type bag beside the television and pulled out a stethoscope. He put it around his neck and said, I used to be a doctor. You know, of course he wasn't. Uh, then asked if he could listen to my heartbeat, adding that he wanted to hear if my heart slowed down while I was drinking. I was so naive. I called me and said, sure, I don't care. I didn't think anything odd about the request. Besides, I figured he did buy me beer. He placed the instrument on my chest outside my shirt, began moving it around, trying to locate my heart. <laughs> that should have set off a red flag. I used to be a doctor. Uh, where's your heart? He's pushing the stethoscope around his fucking shoulder and then like, you know, down in his like, thigh. Is this, is this your heart? It's been so long since I've been doctoring. Uh, next, he asked, Tony says, could you lift up your shirt? I can't hear anything. Without thinking, again, again, red flag. I think a doctor would know that he wouldn't be able to hear something through the shirt. Uh, he continues to move it around on my chest after I lift up my shirt. Suddenly, he began to slowly lower the hearing mechanism towards my belly button. I did not feel comfortable with this. Told him I needed to get going. I added that my parents might be, uh, you know, might lock me out if I get home too late. As I spoke, I heard someone keying the doorknob to enter the residence. About to enter. Kearney's face quickly turned to the direction of the sound. It was his roommate, David Hill. As Hill began to open the front door, Kearney quickly jumped back away from me as if he didn't want his roommate to know what he was doing. Nervously, he said, Dave, do you remember Tony? He used to mow our yard. Say hello. Dave Dave Hill quietly said hi and continued walking straight to the bedroom. As he was walking, I repeated, well, I really have to get going. I wanted to make sure Hill had heard me. Pat said, okay, let me get the keys to my truck. I heard him tell Hill, David, I'll be right back. I'm just going to drive Tony home. And then right before Patrick, I think, undoubtedly was going to sexually assault Tony, if not kill him, he did drive him home. Man, it was a quiet ride. 
When they got close to Tony's house, he told Patrick to pull over because his house was across the street from a park. He lied about this location because he was nervous that Patrick might come back to find him later. Patrick made Tony promise to stop by again the next day, writing, uh, Tony wrote, I remember Pat Kearney had a strange look in his eyes that I will never forget. It was almost hypnotic. He mentioned how good it was to see me again and look forward to tomorrow. I said, well, I I better go. And then I began walking north. I looked back and watched as he turned the truck around and began driving away. Then I ran full speed around the corner to my house. I looked over my shoulder and noticed him turning around again. He must have been, he must have seen me running because he made a U-turn in my direction. I made it to a house around the corner, hid behind my fence. I watched him slowly drive by looking around, but he didn't see me. I thought it was strange that he turned around. I wouldn't realize it until months later that if his roommate hadn't come home when he did, I might've been killed. Months later, Tony's brother calls and tells him to watch the news. He turns it on, right? Sees Patrick's face on the fucking screen and says, I almost fainted. I began to tremble thinking about the night I was at his house alone drinking beer and how he acted. I thought, my God, I was alone with a serial killer drinking beer in the middle of the night. This close call would not supposedly be the only uh, connection Tony would have with this monster. He also wrote that about six months before his game of doctor, he and his friend Gene Austin were going to a party with their friend Billy and one of Gene's friends, John Woods, a.k.a. Woody. Woody, 23 years old, spent the night regaling them with war tales from his experiences in Vietnam. The party they were going to was uh, shut down by the police by the time they got there. So they drove around drinking beer. Tony and Gene then dropped Woody off at a bar and billied his house. Tony and Gene spent the night together, went surfing the next day. The next day, they tried to surf, but the waves weren't very good. So they washed Gene's van. And while doing that, two detectives show up, point their guns at him and order them to get on the ground. One detective asks why they were washing blood out of the van. They quickly learned that their friend Woody has been found that same morning, fatally shot in the head in San Diego, about two hours away from the bar where they dropped him off. They wouldn't learn until a year later that John Woods was one of Patrick Kearney's victims. Fucking how creepy. No wonder Tony wrote a book about the trash bag murder. I'm sure he thought about that motherfucker almost every day after that. Okay, jumping back to the month after Patrick plays doctor and then kills 13-year-old Oliver Peter Molitor now. On April 19th, 1976, Kearney murders 14-year-old Larry uh, Armendariz, listed as 15 years old in some sources. So many super young victims, right? Patrick is 36 at this point. Uh, Larry was already a frequent hitchhiker. Patrick picked him up, shot him in the back of the head, sexually abused his body back at his house, right? Dismembered him, drained the blood in the bathtub, wrapped up his remains and hid them. Less than two months later, he's killing constantly now. And not because he and Dave are continually fighting. He's clearly really developed a taste for all this, a dark addiction of sorts. And as soon as he kills, I imagine the thrill starts to wear off when he starts looking to kill again. Well, on June 11th, 1976, 13-year-old Michael Craig McGee from Redondo Beach goes missing near his house. His remains are never found. Patrick will confess to shooting him in the back of the head, sodomizing him, dismembering him, disposing of his pieces and trash bags. Michael actually was uh, acquainted with Patrick from seeing him around the neighborhood. Probably thought he was a nice guy. Might not have ever seen the gun pointed at the back of his head. Just 10 days later now, June 21st, 1976, 23-year-old John Woods is found in his Hollywood apartment with a gunshot wound to the head. Woods was originally from Iceland, but had been living in the U.S. for five years and worked as a busboy at a department store restaurant. Patrick also confessed to this murder. Uh, No mention made of post-mortem sodomy or dismemberment. Things clearly uh, didn't go according to plan for some reason. A month later, August 23rd, 1976, Patrick now kills 17-year-old Larry Epsi in Redondo Beach. Uh, Pat picked him up while hitchhiking and tranquilized him. Changed it up now. He tranquilized him, brought him back home, dressed him up like a fucking clown while he was passed out, woke him up with some smelling salts, 
And then while pointing a gun at him for some incentive, makes him learn how to juggle first pins, then knives, then small chainsaws. Took three days. But Larry finally figured it all out. And Pat would later say it was magic. You know, it just clicked. Pat rewarded him by taking him out to Papa John's Pizza and buying him a large meat lovers and an extra large Coke. Better kidnapping, better juggling, Papa Kearney. Of course, that's horseshit. No, Pat shot him in the back of the head and sodomized him. I just got tired of fucking saying the same uh, MO over and over again. Uh, cut his body into pieces, put it in trash bags, toss the bags in places sources do not uh, list. Just five days later, just five days later, man, August 28th, 1976, the body of 20-year-old 20, 20 Wilford Lawrence Fairty found in Southeast San Diego County. Again, even shot in the back of the head. No other details are given. Sometime during the fall of 1976, no exact date given, 17-year-old Robert Billy uh, Benefiel, also killed by Pat in Redondo Beach, his body never found. Patrick later confessed to picking him up on the side of the road when his bike broke down. Patrick shot him in the back of the head, took him back to his house, sodomized his body, dismembered it, dumped the remains in different locations. And remember, other murders I'm not mentioning are also going on in the midst of all this. Also in the fall of 1976, holy shit, he's just constantly killing and sodomizing their bodies. The remains of 27-year-old David Allen are found on a remote road in Fallbrook, two miles from Interstate 15. David went missing the day before he was found. He was a Marine at Camp Pendleton. Fallbrook, a census-designated place, just a few miles off base. Uh, Patrick later confessed to shooting him, right, in the head, and then leaving him on the side of the road. No mention of violating his corpse, no trash bag. Again, maybe some uh, somebody came by, he got spooked, and uh, the plan changed. 19-year-old Timothy B. Ingham is now found dead. September 24th, 1976, near Highway 79, 60 miles from San Diego, still in San Diego County. He is found naked, his remains. Tony had one 22 caliber gunshot wound to the head, and his body had been dumped into a ravine. No word on whether his body had been sodomized or not. According to police, Tim Timothy was on a hitchhiking trip when he went missing. In September of 1976, uh, Timothy had left his home in Merced. He told his dad, William, he's going to hitchhike all the way to Louisiana to see his 15-year-old girlfriend back when people did that kind of shit a lot more often than they do now. And sadly, he never got, you know, even close. Less than two weeks later, October 5th, 20-year-old Mark Orak was hitchhiking to Mexico when he got picked up for the last time. Patrick uh, pulled over to grab him in Orange County the next day. This poor guy's body was found in a secluded area on the outskirts of Orange County. He had no ID, was listed as a John Doe at the time. Mark had started his hitchhiking journey way up north on the west coast of Canada. People from Ottawa told the Ottawa Journal that Mark had been a wanderer for many years. He had dropped out of high school in the fall of 1972 when he was just a freshman. The vice principal of Sir John A. McDonald High later told the Ottawa Journal that he had last seen Mark a few years before he died, saying, I was walking to the Y when I saw him. He shouted to me and we had a little talk about what he was doing. I think he got a job and some sort of rehabilitation work out west. He was happy. Looked like he had got himself straight. Proud, I guess you could say. Man, what a fucking shame. Mark's body would not be identified until July 8th, 1977, thanks to a Kearney confession. And again, no word on whether or not he had been sexually violated post-gunshot. Just five fucking days after killing Mark, on October 10th, the body of 16-year-old Randall Lawrence Moore, now found on Highway 80 east of El Cajon. He had been murdered that same day. He was originally from Phoenix, Again, no word on any possible sexual acts. I have to think sodomy was, uh, you know, suspected in most, if not all of these cases where it's not stated that the corpse was violated, but, it is, but they are a known Kearney victim. Maybe decomposition made it harder to ascertain in some of these cases. Uh, Randall's remains found six days later. Uh, jumping over three months ahead now. Now we're into 1977. Maybe Patrick and Dave were really getting along during the holidays. 
But then, you know, something happened. Or maybe Pat no longer needed a fight to trigger him, right? Like, as I mentioned before, he just got a taste for this. January 24th, 1977, the remains of 28-year-old Nicholas Hernandez Jimenez found near Lenox Boulevard under the San Diego Freeway overpass. Nicholas was originally from Guatemala, worked as a busboy, lived in an apartment on Mariposa Avenue, and he'd been shot in the head, stabbed in the stomach, which was new, and stuffed in a trash bag. Uh, Again, no word on post-mortem sodomy. Uh, Maybe Patrick is sometimes struggling with some impotence. What is big deal? So he have a soft shame cock. Maybe this is why he tried to stab. It always worked for me. Put so much lead in murder pencil, but not work for everyone. Thank you for that, Chikatilo. That was, uh, it really added a lot of value to this episode. Uh, about six weeks later, March 3rd, the remains of 24-year-old Arturo Ramos Marquez are found. He had been fatally shot, left naked along Interstate 10 near Banning in Riverside County. His remains had been positively sodomized post-mortem. Uh, Arturo had last been seen alive a week earlier, February 26th in Oxnard. Right before he disappeared, Arturo was headed into a Mexican restaurant in Beverly Hills to meet a lawyer. Arturo's friend said he and this lawyer were having sex. Lawyer will deny this. His body was found when linemen working on a dirt road a mile north of the I-10 freeway near Palm Springs saw buzzards landing near a ditch. They went to check out what the buzzards were feeding on and found the body of Arturo. He'd been dead for about five days, died from a 22 gunshot wound to the you know, side of the head, also been stabbed once in the abdomen, that stab again. Pat never said what the uh, stabbings were about, but they were done after the people had been shot. Just wanted to maybe see how the stab, uh, how it felt to stab them. I don't know. Arturo was an Oxnard High School uh, or had an Oxnard High School ring with the initials ARM engraved on it when his body was found. A couple days later, a manila envelope was delivered in Arturo's mailbox with keys and a short type message in Spanish. The message said that the keys were for Arturo's car. Arturo's roommate took the envelope to the police and the unnamed attorney became the first suspect. But he denied meeting Arturo on the day he went missing, denied sleeping with Arturo. An analysis of Arturo's stomach showed that he ate salsa and tortillas before he died, which indicated he might have gone to meet the lawyer at the Mexican restaurant. And for a time, police were convinced that the lawyer had killed Patrick. Um, excuse me, that the lawyer had killed Arturo, but he was never arrested. Wonder if he uh, would have been arrested a few months later had Patrick not turned himself in and confessed to this killing. I wonder how many other people were suspected in Patrick Kearney's other murders. How many people were questioned? How many people's lives were shook up? Uh, Patrick must have felt like a fucking criminal mastermind at this point. He just keeps killing and killing and killing, right, for 15 years now, very frequently for the previous year or so. Police still don't have a clue who he is, not on anyone's radar, but that is about to finally change. Just 10 days after Arturo's remains are found, on March 13th, 1977, 17-year-old John LeMay, last seen by his parents. He was leaving home to go visit a man named Dave. Dave is in David Hill, Patrick's 34-year-old boyfriend. So, you know, no big whoops, just a 17-year-old heading out to meet up with a 34-year-old. At least Patrick's longtime lover isn't a creep. At least he's a stand-up dude, right? At least one of these guys is uh, not creepy. According to Patrick Kearney's later confession, he was home alone when John showed up at the house. When John knocked on the door, Patrick invited him in to sit down and watch some TV. Not sure what show I was on, but it was the last one John would ever watch. When John got up at some point to go change the channel, Patrick just casually walked up behind him and shot him in the back of the fucking head. Clearly, these 22 caliber weapons are not making a big mess. If they were, I would think that his house, the house that he shared with Dave, would have just been covered in obvious bloodstains by this point. Two days later, March 15th, 1977, an L.A. County Sheriff's Department spokesman says that the murders of at least seven young men whose remains have been found near highways in four Southern California counties since April of 1975 are the subject of a joint investigation by homicide investigators in those counties. 
They were operating under the assumption that the same serial killer had murdered all of them. While some task forces had already been looking for a freeway killer responsible for Kearney's murders and the murders of Randy Kraft, some investigators have already distinguished key differences between these killings. All of the victims of this investigation have been shot in the head. Many, if not all, have been sodomized post-mortem. They're finally starting to narrow in on Patrick and they have no idea they're about to get a huge break in this case. Uh, three days later, March 18th, some of John LeMay's dismembered remains are found near Highway 71 south of Corona in Riverside County. What they found had been found drained of blood, uh, put into five trash bags. The bags were sealed with nylon filament tape. Three of the bags were crammed into 80-gallon oil drums uh, or into one 80-gallon oil drum and two were left on the ground near the drum. The bags were Mipro 6160, an industrial brand. The medical examiner guessed that John had been there for about four days. Investigators also found several pubic hairs on the remains that were not John's and some green carpet fibers. They got stuck to that nylon tape. And these little clues will soon lead investigators straight to Kearney. Uh, Well, these clues plus the big fucking screw up where John had headed straight to Patrick's house to meet Dave before John impulsively killed him. And what had to have been just a moment of jealous rage. I mean, that actually probably mainly is what led investigators straight to Kearney, but then combined with the other evidence would seal the deal. Uh, big fuck up. John's mom, Patricia, identified his body. His head was not found uh, by medical evidence and a scar on his left leg. Patricia LeMay had reported her son missing back on March 13th, and she told police that John had left to visit a friend named Dave. So police do some digging. Who is this Dave character? John's friend, Michael Trainer, gives the police Dave's full name and directs him to his house at 1906 Robinson Street in Redondo Beach, uh, to the house that Patrick, you know, owned. Uh, that house has not been updated much, it seems, uh, based on some real estate apps. Maybe not since uh, these fucking guys lived there. Pretty small, 812 square feet. Two beds, one bath. Estimated to being worth a bit more than the $20,750 that Patrick paid. Now valued at somewhere between $800,000 and a million dollars. That is some solid appreciation. Sorry, I know I nerd out about this stuff, which just fascinates me. The police talked to Patrick and Dave now and learned that John had met Dave at the Midtown Spa, uh, a place, according to Dennis McDougal, that was one of the oldest discreetly gay bathhouses in downtown L.A. Previous victim, Arturo uh, uh, Ramos Marquez, uh, his name is written differently, sorry here, uh, also visited the Midtown Spa. The police connected Arturo and John when they connected the Midtown sign-in list. Two other names appeared repeatedly on that list, David Hill and Patrick Kearney from Redondo Beach. So they've almost got this motherfucker. Sadly, before an arrest can be made, Pat decides someone else is going to die, another very young victim. Investigators don't have quite enough at this moment to arrest Pat. Uh, Not yet. Eight-year-old Merle Hondo Chance goes missing the next month on April 6th after he left home on his bike. Poor little dude lived in Venice. Merle was reported missing on April 6th after he failed to come home after dark. He'd gotten into an argument with his parents about a trash fire that initially police thought uh, he might be hiding out over, you know, worried about being in trouble. He was last seen riding his bike around 3 p.m. that day near Jefferson Boulevard and Inglewood Avenue. By Saturday, April 9th, police no longer think he has just run away for a bit and a bunch of officers are out, you know, working overtime, searching for him. Initially, they're very hopeful that they can find him. There was a reported sighting of Merle Saturday, April 9th. A witness reported seeing him riding his bike uh, near Hughes Aircraft in Westchester. Maybe they did. Uh, he might've actually been, you know, hiding out for a little while. Investigator Rosalie Kimberlin from the LA Venice division said a few days later, this sounds kind of hopeful that he may be hiding out. If he was seen Saturday night, chances of foul play are not strong. But of course, you know, chances of foul play are hundred uh, percent. Patrick saw Merle riding his bike in the Hughes aircraft parking lot. He'll later confess. 
Uh, he didn't say what day exactly he saw him. Uh, said the kid was having bike trouble. Patrick offered to help him. He put Merle's bike uh, in the back of his truck, drove him to a bike shop, got the bike fixed, took Merle to a hamburger stand next to Tito's Tacos Den. Fucking love me some Tito's hard shell tacos. Shredded beef, grated cheddar cheese, sliced iceberg lettuce, the good kind, and a freshly cooked corn tortilla shell. And then I throw a ton of guac and salsa on it. I've had so many happy meals at Tito's Tacos. So strange to think that Patrick Kearney once took an eight-year-old there right before he fucking killed him. While they ate, Patrick told the kid that one day he was going to take him to Disneyland. Then he drove him up north past Glendale. So, you know, way north on the LA area. Smothered him, kind of like he'd suffocated that five-year-old Ronald Dean Smith Jr. back in 1974. Uh, But then this time, he does sodomize his corpse. My God, eight years old. Patrick later said he killed Merle because he was worried about getting caught. He was with Merle for a couple of hours. Said uh, that, you know, if Merle were to talk to the police, they would be able to find him and identify him as the killer based on, I guess, what him and Merle were talking about. But I fucking highly doubt that story. I think he killed him because he wanted to have sex with the kid's dead body. He was getting sicker right before they caught him. Later in April 1977, the police talked to Patrick and David again at their home about John LeMay. Uh, During this interview, while Patrick and David are getting themselves presentable, the (laughs) the (laughs) deputative, I've never tried to combine deputy and detective, the deputative. Uh, Deputy Larry Miller picks some fibers from the green carpet and puts them in his pocket. Nice. Fuck yeah, brothers. Well played. He wants to know if they match the green carpet fibers found with LeMay's remains. Patrick tells the officers that he and David are gay and that they're scared of being murdered because of the high number of gay men being murdered in recent years. Patrick said he was working when John went missing and David was with a friend. David tells officers that he had known John for two years, admits he had engaged in homosexual activities with him. And then the two uh, police officers leave and they don't arrest uh, David because John, you know, even though he wasn't 18, he was of legal age uh, to consent to have sex with Dave. Next day, their crime lab confirms that the green carpet fibers that Miller had picked up were a perfect match to the ones found on the tape in the John LeMay case. Now deputies go to Hughes Aircraft to verify Patrick's alibi. While there, they find unused Mipro trash bags near Patrick's office. They review the company's office supplies, see that they had also purchased the exact same nylon tape used to seal the trash bag shut that LeMay's remains have been put in. The alibi also does not check out. Obviously, Patrick is the main suspect, with Dave being looked at as an accomplice and possible second killer. But that carpet fiber match is not usable in court. Not at this point, because Miller took them from Patrick's home without permission. Miller is told by a prosecutor that he'll have to go back and ask for carpet samples. Shit. Well, he is lucky. May 3rd, 1977, Larry Miller, Deputy Dan Wilson, head back to Kearney's house, ask for the carpet fibers, and David and Patrick surprisingly agreed to give them to them. Patrick's ass crack must have been filled with so much fucking sweat. Or maybe he thought he had been uh, careful enough not to get any fibers on LeMay's remains. Or maybe part of him wanted to get caught. Uh, the two men also then agreed to hand over their pubic hair I wonder if Patrick was uh, so pissed. He was being asked about all this shit in front of Dave, who, of course, he's going to keep doing whatever officers want, right? He didn't do anything. Just like, yeah, no problem. Meanwhile, Patrick's like, sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you bet. Like uh, Dave said, we'll go get you some of our pubes. Thank you, Dave. So fucking helpful, Dave. Uh, Patrick's pubic hair does match the hair found in one of the trash bags full of LeMay's remains. Uh, by May of 1977, the police are closing in on making an arrest for Patrick. They still want just a bit more evidence, I guess. Uh, they still think that David is involved. So, you know, they're closing on two arrests. Now Patrick and David are getting nervous and they start making plans to leave town. 
It seems as if Patrick is ready to leave because obviously he has been killing a ton of people. David is ready to leave, ready to leave. Well, because who knows? Maybe he's worried about being framed. David now writes to Patrick's grandma who lives in Barstow, asks her to sell Patrick's house, pay their bills for them because they are heading out of town. David wrote that one of their friends was killed and the police have been harassing them about it. The letter instructed Patrick's grandmother in meticulous detail how to dispose of their belongings. They told her that they were heading to Canada with two friends. David wrote, we are not going to live or work in the LA area any longer. When we come back, we will move to Barstow. We are not able to handle things and need your help. David said that Patrick was too tired to write and that's why he wrote on his behalf. And Patrick probably was exhausted, stressed the fuck out. He's about to become a wanted man. Uh, Patrick soon will ask his grandma to sell the house and pay $6,000 worth of debts. He told her, I don't care how much you sell the house for. They say it's worth 40 to 60, uh, excuse me, 40 to $50,000, but I just want to get the bills paid. Patrick said that if he didn't pay off his debts, he'd be placed in jail. And then finally, he asked his grandma to sell his business, right? Pat Kearney's DTF Dobermans. Tells his grandma he currently has an inventory of 37 Dobermans and that she should be able to fetch 500 bucks to pop for him way above typical asking price. Why? Well, because these motherfuckers have the cleanest, the sweetest buttholes in the LA area. He tells his grandma that if she doesn't believe him, she is, of course, free to lick each and every one herself. He tells her these butts are so clean, you can eat off of them and that he does eat off of them several times a week. Fact. Print it. No, uh, May 6th, 1977. Back to reality now. Patrick calls in sick to work and then never returns to work again. According to Dennis McDoodle, McDoodle, (laughs) uh, Dennis McDougal, when Patrick sent his resignation letter, he was about to be hired as an overseas engineer in Saudi Arabia for a defense contractor. Said he'd been given secret security clearance and was going to take company-sponsored classes in Arabic, about to make a whole bunch more money, if this is true. Also, maybe start killing again in a new country where he's not a suspect. Two weeks later, May 20th, 1977, Patrick picks up his final check at Hughes Aircraft. His future in this industry is over. I'm sure he knows this. I can't believe he's still hanging around town. Now he and David flee to California, traveling to, uh, uh, you know, flee out of California, traveling to El Paso, Texas, first driving to Arizona and then New Mexico. Their families try and talk him to, you know, coming back home, surrounding themselves and clearing their names. June 2nd, 1977. Now, Judge Howard M. Dabney of Riverside County issues warrants for the arrests of both Patrick Kearney and David Hill. They are wanted for, you know, a double homicide. The police had just completed a second search of Patrick and David's home. Evidence from a vacuum cleaner had linked Patrick, and they thought also David this time to additional, you know, to another murder. Investigators found round plastic circles that matched punch outs from Mipro chemical grade trash bags used to hide bodies. Uh, So actually they did think, you know, possibly additional murders, but I think they did just charge him with two initially. Uh, Patrick had a supply of Mipro bags in his attic. Also found a hacksaw blade. Looked normal at first glance, but when they took it apart, they found some blood and human hair wedged between uh, the blade and a bolt. Patrick had not cleaned it as well as he thought he had. They sprayed luminol in the bathroom, found blood in the bathtub and on the walls around the bathtub. According to uh, McDougal, Patrick would later say, I washed a lot of the bodies because with dried blood, you can leave fingerprints. I was worried about leaving bloody prints around and they began to smell if they're not, and they began to smell if they're not clean. A box of manila envelopes linked Kearney and Hill actually to Arturo, The yellow cardboard envelope used to mail the car keys came from a box found in Kearney's house. Weird that he did that. Uh, The blood in the shower matches John LeMay's blood type, pubic hair, carpet fibers, and hair from two poodles in the home match those found on John's body. The Riverside Press Enterprise now publishes the sheriff's affidavit, which indicates uh, evidence connecting Patrick and David to uh, at least two murders, right? The bloody hacksaw, carpet samples, body hairs. 
states that the trash bags and tape used on victims came from Hughes aircraft, carpet threads from their house, match carpet threads found on tape binding John's hands and on another victim's shoes, hairs from their dog have been found on several bodies. Word is out. It's on the nightly news right now as well. Patrick Kearney and David Hill are murderers. Uh, June 9th, 1977, the LA Times reports that skeletal remains found in the Angeles or Angeles National Forest were identified as Merle Hondo Chance by the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office. Merle was identified by his dental charts, that poor eight-year-old kid, right? Patrick's last victim. Merle's remains were found May 26, 1977 by a hiker in a shallow animal ravaged grave. The grave was marked with stones and located in the Hidden Springs area, 11 miles north of Altadena. Uh, the grave was unearthed by rain and the body had been there for six to eight weeks when found. Merle's bicycle was not found. Less than a month later, tired of hiding out, July 1st, 1977, Patrick Kearney and David Hill walk into the Riverside County Sheriff's Office, point at their wanted posters and said either, that's us or we're them. <sighs> and then Patrick sat down with investigators and started confessing to a bunch of shit they were not ready for. Roughly 3,500 dogs fucked. Another 5,000 or so dogs fucked him, also illegal, and at least 10,000 canine buttholes licked. It was a record, a world record. The whole department started cheering. Investigators immediately called people from Guinness. Uh, no, uh, Pat confessed to way more than the few murders he was suspected of committing. He sat down and quickly started confessing to 28 murders. Those investigators' minds must have been fucking blown. Why did he do that? Why not fight the charges? Did part of him want it all to be over? Seems like maybe. Was he tired of just, you know, worrying about being caught? Did he truly care about Dave and wanted to make sure he didn't get dragged into what he'd done? When Patrick was asked if he had any association with another killer, all he said was inadvertently. I lived in Long Beach and I did a lot of corresponding with people who put ads in the free press. He, de- he declined to elaborate, unfortunately, what the fuck that means. Uh, it did seem to investigators that Patrick's eyes lit up with recognition when they asked him about the craft style torture of some other freeway killer victims. But uh, Patrick seemed almost offended that he was considered a suspect in those murders. During the initial questioning, he was questioned about targeting Marines and drugging them, which is what Kraft did so often. Uh, he seemed confused. Police asked him if he put anything into victims' rectums. Nope. Didn't fuck with Randy's butt socks. Patrick said he used towels to keep the bodies from leaking. The detectives continued to ask him about victim torture, and Patrick said, I'm not the wooden stake. And he is referring there to 1975 Kraft victim John William Larris, a 17-year-old who Randy shoved a wooden surveyor's stake inside of. La. Man, Randy Kraft, he was fucking evil. Loved shoving very painful things up people's asses. Uh, Patrick told investigators basically that, uh, you know, that kind of shit was not his style. He said that typically he shot his victims with his right hand with a 22 pistol while steering the car with his left. He said that usually it was all so quick that the dead man's facial expression was rarely even surprised. I wonder if he was weirdly proud of that. He then would uh, normally drive down the road with the body in the seat until he got somewhere isolated and could hide the body after having sex with it. In other cases, of course, he took people home, killed them there, also with a 22 of some kind, then had sex with them at his house, dismembered them in the bathroom, putting their parts into trash bags, you know, after the necrophilia. If he killed a victim at home, he said he, uh, you know, cut them up in the bathtub where he would drain the blood. Patrick said he was inspired to do that by another serial killer, Dean Coral, the dude we covered in Suck 101, the Candyman killer. Origin story for Chicken Joe, right? Bok, bok, playboy, bok, bok who also used dismemberment with tra- and trash bags with some victims and buried them. And Patrick studied Coral. Right? This book comes out about Coral and, and newspaper articles, clippings of the crimes. You know, he reads everything he can find. 
He also read that Coral and his accomplices yanked out their victims' pubic hair sometimes. So he did some of the same with, uh, uh, did the same, excuse me, with many of his victims. So weird. He just gets, uh, you know, uh, mesmerized by this other serial killer. Patrick insisted that Dave Hill was innocent, said Dave was always gone when he committed the murders. He'll never waver on this. To prove he wasn't fucking around when it came to other murders he claimed he committed uh, that the police hadn't suspected him of, Patrick drew a map to the triplex house in Culver City. This is the first body he shows him where he and Dave lived from 1968 to 1970. And, uh, you know, he said the remains of a man named George would be found there and they were. Patrick said that he was paranoid that he would be caught after killing George, but after a year, realized that he'd actually gotten away with murder. Patrick also explained why he dumped many of the bodies where he did out in the desert saying, I used to live in Arizona and I noticed that things disappeared very rapidly in the desert. You can put a small animal on an anthill and it disappears right in front of your eyes. Creepy. How many little critters did he kill during his brief time in Arizona? Uh, Also admitted to beating some of his victims after they were dead. He blamed that on the whole rage of being bullied as a kid thing. Said he didn't begin dismembering his victims until several years after George telling investigators it was curiosity. The gore of it, you know, what would it be like cutting somebody open does tend to sound a little bit exciting when they're dead, but it didn't give me any thrill when I did it. I did it for curiosity to see if it would, but it didn't. Patrick said it took him several years to establish his routine of dismembering victims, putting them in trash bags and dumping their bodies. Also talked about some close calls when dumping bodies said, uh, he once got a flat tire during a drive out in the desert. His spare was also flat. So he had to call a tow truck and was terrified that the attendant would question him about the bags in his car, which contained the remains of a victim. That is a close call. Uh, Patrick also uh, once locked his keys in his car while looking around for body dumping sites. Said it took him hours to get the lock open. He was worried that someone would catch him with bags full of body parts in his car. Uh, There was something darkly funny here to me about one of the worst times to lock your keys in the car. Like when you have a bunch of dead bodies in it. Just like, are you fucking, are you kidding me? Oh, I really do not want to have to bust open my own window right now. If only these fucking dead guys could just be a little more alive and unlock the goddamn door, please. Uh, Riverside County Deputy D.A. Balkowski soon called over to interview Patrick after he turned himself in, started talking. Yes, I mentioned him before. A, a Polish guy. <laughs> Polish guy called in to solve this case. So pff, let's see. Uh, let's see how this goes. <laughs> Mamma mia, it's been a long time all since me you make it a fun out of the Polish pierogi pepperonis based on all the stereotypes. Antonio Banderas mixing the two of them stereotypes together. Like a fettuccine and alfredo. Maserati Bugatti. As I talk like this, that's a spicy spetzel. Nailed it. My Italian's getting even better. Masterclass. Uh, anyway, Bukowski asked Patrick how many people he killed. He answered first saying, I don't know, but more than 30. You got a little more specific later. Patrick said he'd been uh, killing people since 1962. Gave details about the murders he could remember. And we covered most of those murders in the timeline. According to uh, Bukowski, Patrick said he committed necrophilia with the bodies because it made him feel powerful. Patrick uh, didn't seem to show any shame when talking about this. Uh, Bukowski said, you would be able to have a conversation with him sitting here talking about a lot of things and never have an inkling that there's something bizarre about this guy. There's something weird about this guy. You would not get that feeling with this man. That is so strange. They could just talk about this stuff just casually and just seem like a normal dude. In my mind, I just went to this place of like, uh, he's just like, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, can you tell me if the, if the Dodgers, just real quick, if the Dodgers won today? Really? Garvey had another dinger? Man, that lineup is killer. I'm sorry. And Sutton was pitching? Ah, well, of course they won. I, you know, I just don't see how they, how they don't win the NL West. I mean, how many games are they up on the Reds right now? Five? Oh, hell yeah. Excuse me? 
Oh, oh, sure. Uh, yeah, I just really prefer sex with a corpse. Anal, obviously. I like the cooler temperature of a recently dead body and the hole's a little tighter. Not worried about anyone screaming like a baby either. Uh, hey, was Dusty Baker in the lineup today? Ah, I know his knee has been bothering him again, but uh, man, we need him. We need him for a real push if we're going to win the series. What? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can talk about how to cut somebody's head off with a hacksaw. Uh, it's pretty easy. Anyway, before I get too deep into that, can someone go grab me some tacos and Tito's? Hot damn, that guac is so fresh. You ever eat those gringo tacos? Oh, man, hell yeah. A few days later, July 4th, 1977, Patrick goes with investigators to Imperial County, identifies six possible body locations. Patrick also helps identify two bodies who have already been found, but listed as John Doe's, right? Everything's checking out with him about this stuff. He's not bullshitting them about body locations and identities. Also keeps insisting that Dave is innocent. Still, the following day, July 5th, Patrick Kearney and David Hill both arraigned for two murders initially, their bail set at $500,000 each. Neither man immediately enters a plea as advised by their lawyers. And they were then formally charged with the murders of Arturo Marquez and John Otis LeMay. A judge ordered them to be held on $500,000 bail, $500, bail uh, each again, uh, sets a date for their plea hearing of July 15th. Uh, Patrick spoke at the arraignment, expressed his wish to hire a lawyer. David was assigned a public defender. The authorities made statements that Patrick and David were both involved in 15 workable cases and possibly 13 others where the victims might be too decomposed to bring evidence to court, right? Still, investigators are uh, convinced that the two of them are doing this together. Over the next week, Patrick leads investigators to, uh, to both identifying more John Doe victims and to also finding more missing person murder victims. July 13th, 1977, Patrick is indicted by a Riverside County Grand Jury for the murders of Arturo Marquez, Albert Rivera, and John Otis LeMay. The grand jury deliberates for just one hour, and they refuse to indict David Hill in connection with at least 15, but possibly 28 murders. After being indicted, Patrick uh, appears before Judge E. Scott Dales, and his arraignment is set for July 28th. Uh, Patrick has uh, given investigators details for at least 28 murders by now. Authorities in L.A., Orange, Riverside, San Diego, and Imperial Counties investigating more and more of his claims. David Hill is released from jail the next day, July 14th. Not enough evidence to prove he was at the scene of any of the murders. So now Patrick is the sole focus of the investigation. July 28th, Patrick pleads not guilty to three murder charges, and his trial is set for October 5th. So why is he pleading not guilty? Well, he's working on getting a plea deal. He knows he'll never walk free again. He just doesn't want to be put on death row and executed. Five months later, after a series of legal maneuverings, December 21st, 1977, 38-year-old Patrick Kearney does plead guilty to three murders in exchange for being sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in seven years after he waives a probation report and has to be sentenced immediately and gets his plea deal. And saying to me that he would be eligible for parole, and he would be eligible for parole in February of 1984, just once it seems. This apparently was just due to the way that California's laws were written about sentencing when you were not sent to death row and part of how some of these plea deals would go, but everybody apparently was 100% confident he would never get out of prison, and he is still in prison. Patrick's attorney advised him to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but Patrick pled guilty and asked for immediate sentencing to make sure that he avoided the death penalty. On December 21st, the judge lifted a gag order, allowing the media now to report details about these murders. Reports, uh, reporters excuse me, were allowed to interview Patrick in court after his sentencing, but he declined to speak. He just said, I can't allow myself to think about it much. It's too painful. What? Uh, it wasn't painful to do it, obviously, uh, but painful to talk about it now? What a... What a selfish prick. Uh, court documents were released after a sentencing that shared additional details about Kearney, though. Uh, according to the LA Times, Patrick spoke with psychiatrists calmly and without emotion 
about how he killed as many victims. Uh, he said he was bisexual. I fucking doubt it. There was never mention of him being romantically linked to a woman outside of maybe this brief marriage when he was still a teenager that I don't buy. Uh, was he uncomfortable thinking of himself as being gay? Did he prefer to have sex with dead males outside of Dave because of some self-hate? He wanted to fuck boys and men who would never tell anyone, you know, who they fucked, who would never look at him as he fucked them. Who knows? Speculating. Uh, Patrick also admitted to having a morbid curiosity about his victims' bodies and sometimes said he committed sex acts on them after they were killed to satisfy his curiosity. I think he has curiosity, uh, you know, confused with just wanted to come. Uh, The Riverside Press Enterprise quoted doctor's reports on December 22nd that stated that Patrick explained that murder vented his frustrations and gave him a feeling of power. According to one doctor, he does not see himself as mentally ill. Uh, Patrick originally admitted to 28 murders in 10 counties. According to Deputy DA Bukowski, Patrick sent a letter in December of 1977 to L.A. County Sheriff Peter Pitches, admitting to five more murders in L.A. County. Four of those murders were new cases. One overlapped with the previous total of 28. And so all of this brings his confessed total to 32. The L.A. County DA's office said on December 22nd that they were considering prosecuting Patrick for up to 21 more murders. February 2nd, 1978, Patrick's attorney, Jay Grossman, reports that L.A. police and sheriff's detectives interviewed Patrick in prison about the murders of 18 boys and young men he had not been charged with. February 15th, 1978, he's officially charged with 17 of those 18 murders. The victims ranged uh, ranged in ages from 5 to 28. This was the largest number of homicide counts ever filed in L.A. County. Eight of the charges came from other jurisdictions. Five bodies found in L.A., four in San Diego County, two in Orange County, two in Imperial County, four of the victims uh, not found. The evidence for these charges was gathered by Sheriff's Homicide Detectives Al Set and Roger Wilson. Set would tell the LA Times, we had conversations with Kearney and as a result of these talks, we filed these 17 counts and that this completely wraps up all possible charges against Kearney. Well, he's close, not quite all of them. Four of the 17 victims were found in trash bags, at least three different 22 caliber weapons used in all the murders. February 21st, Patrick Kearney pleads guilty to not 17, but 18 more counts of murder. They added one more murder charge. Overall, Patrick uh, now pled guilty to 21 counts, the original three plus 18 new ones, and received 21 life sentences after additional sentencing. Judge uh, Dick Ran, not kidding. Judge fucking Dick Ran. First name Dick Ran. D-I-C-K-R-A-N. Fucking got our dick in an extra special way. You know, first time I've seen a Dick Ran. His last name is Tevrizian. That's, he should have thought about changing his name. Uh... <laughs> Mr. Dick Rantezrizian, he asked Kearney, I feel I have some obligation to the 18 people whom you have silenced. The families of the victims want to know why. Can you tell us why? And Patrick responded, seriously, your name is fucking Dick Rant, as in a Dick Rant. No, he said, I prefer not to. And again, what a prick. Cruel and selfish. He could have told him, but he, uh, he didn't have to, right? Shitty, selfish little power move here. Flaunting the last bit of power he has left to prevent victims' families from getting a little extra closure. Investigators believe that Kearney definitely murdered another seven victims, possibly 11 more, but the police didn't have enough evidence to charge him in the additional killings. And right, they were satisfied he would obviously spend the rest of his life in prison for 21 murders. After Patrick's new sentencing, some more medical reports are released to the press from conversations with psychiatrist Dr. C. Wright Anderson. Got fucking C. Wright and Dick Rand in this suck. According to Anderson's uh, report, Patrick said that the first murders were motivated by curiosity and uh, having sex with the victims after death. Okay, all right. Maybe probably a little honesty uh, there. Patrick told Dr. Anderson that most of the victims reminded him of a type of person who 
who had given him a bad time during his teenage years. Says most, but not all. According to Patrick, one of these people who gave him a bad time was blonde and arrogant. And he said it was this type of person who tried to force him into homosexuality in his teens. What does that mean? Was he molested, raped, or, or is he just trying to blame someone or multiple someones, or maybe this is a blonde guy, for making him gay? Right? It's that person's fault for him killing later. Uh, that's not how this works. Uh, another report filed by Riverside County Deputy Probation Officer Sue King had a quote from Kearney saying, it did not take much reason to kill anyone. It just became a habit. What a fucking terrible habit to have. What a weird habit, right? To talk about kicking. Oh, good for you, man. Smoking is a nasty habit. I used to have a pretty nasty habit myself. Couldn't stop shooting boys and men in the head and then sodomizing them and chopping them up. Quit cold turkey the day I turned myself in. Also used to have a real nasty dog butthole habit. But that's a story for another day. Uh, as of 2022, Patrick Wayne, dog fucker, probably butt licker Kearney. Still alive. He's 83 years old, incarcerated at Mule Creek State Prison, has not been eligible for parole since February of 1984. One of his fellow inmates, former suck subject Scott Peterson. Another fellow inmate, James Michael Monroe, one of the accomplices of that freeway killer, Billy Gutterballs, William Bonnet. The other freeway killer, Randy Kraft, currently incarcerated in San Quentin, and that takes us out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Okay, before I recap about Mr. Dog Buttlicker, I have one more fantastic sponsor I want to share with you today I am very, very excited about. Time Suck Today is brought to you by the new AD&D campaign, Nimrod's Realm. Explore the mysteries of the universe. As you fight to get out of hell and into heaven, that is out of Nimrod's butthole and into his alpha and omega ballsack. Along with you as you fight monsters like the peanut butt butter elder fish dragon, showbiz, and the deathlock wrestler. What is big deal? I kill you with Dragon King. You will need to sway Luciferine and Bojangles to your side. You cannot win without the help of these powerful guards. You will be given clues if you live to make it to each new checkpoint by the Lord of Bards, Triple M. Watch out for some owlbears. Oh, 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 lots of owlbears. But fear not, for at least one member of your party will be allowed to play as the powerful fighting man. Fighting man, fighting man, I am a fighting man. Watch out for my melee sword. This is my defense shield. Goblin troll, elf, wizard, fight, 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 fight. Believe, Meat Sack. And you can break free from hell and enter heaven. Play Nimrod's Quest today. Play at your own risk. Snacks, soft drinks, Satan vagina is not included. Nimrod's Realm is owned and licensed by Bear Evil Incorporated. Man, what a good sponsor. That game sounds sick as fuck. Oh, whew. All right, now to close out. Patrick Wayne Kearney. What? A dirtbag. What a terrible example of a front butt dump. Another freeway killer. Uh, So much we'll never know about him, as is the case with so many of these assholes, right? Some of them, I think, uh, well, pretty clearly relish in the attention they get being so free to talk about their worst acts. Uh, Like Arthur Shawcross did, right? That head wound riddled Mr. Potato Head uh, got off uh, on freaking people out over the crimes of the Genesee River killer. Ed, don't get my zapples riled up. Kemper, very honest about what he did. 
I think he seems uh, to have gotten off also and kind of freaking people out. But so many of these other guys, uh, they just won't say, right? They won't talk about their crimes. The other living freeway killer, Randy Kraft, has been especially tight-lipped. I think they do this to be cruel, right? I think they get off on frustrating uh, you know, family members who who just want to know exactly what happened to their loved one. You know, even if they probably don't need to know. Uh, they want to frustrate criminology students and investigators. And they just, yeah, it's just what, like, the, one of the few cards they have left to play. They don't have to, so they don't. They love to antagonize people, I think. Um, you know, it's not like Patrick specifically is holding out on any information because he thinks he's uh, going to get out of prison. He's never appealed a sentence. He's 83. I think he just won't talk about it because he's a selfish fuck. He was a selfish guy who, uh, you know, killed people. He was selfish in how he killed, who he killed. Selfish now not to come 100% totally clean with everything. I also wonder with this case, whatever happened to David Hill? Man, I tried to, I searched and searched and searched. Could not find any information, not a peep in a variety of web searches. Did the man I think Patrick really did love ever visit him in prison? Is he still alive? Did he go back to Texas? Did he take on a new identity? Did he know about what Patrick was doing before? the arrest was he maybe even an accomplice i don't know cannot find any information it's like he just fucking vanished from the public eye right after he was released uh, after being arrested and i guess i might do the same if i was him okay time to go over some of what we learned about this week's dog fucker now sorry for all the dog fucking talk with jangles and also learn something new and weird about pat in today's top five takeaways time suck top five takeaways number one patrick kearney was known after his arrest as the trash bag killer after many of his crimes previously were believed to have been uh you know a part of the fictitious freeway killer crimes unlike many serial killers kearney did not torture his victims while they were still alive he shot him in the head often when they were not even paying attention never even saw his gun then committed acts of necrophilia with their bodies some cases he drained their bodies of blood in his bathtub dismembered them put their various body parts in industrial trash bags he took from his workplace, dumped their bodies in random locations, often along Southern California highways, like other so-called freeway killers, uh, you know, one who was active at the same time as him, the other active a few years after his arrest. Number two, Patrick Wayne Kearney was likely bullied as a child for being small and sickly. Instead of standing up for himself or arguing with his bullies, he began to internalize his hatred of them, have a, a lot of sick fantasies about killing them, skinning them and such. Then as a young teenager, Patrick's father taught him how to uh, hunt, shoot pigs, other animals, which seems to have fueled some murderous fantasies that were later sexualized. Number three, Patrick Kearney was in a long-term relationship with David Hill for many years. The two men lived together in different uh, Southern California cities. Uh, Both Patrick and David fled from the police after being questioned for the murder of John LeMay, and then both turned themselves in at the Riverside County Sheriff's Office. Patrick then took the blame for 28 murders, soon bumped up to 32 and insisted that David had no knowledge of any of the murders and was never home when he killed. Uh, Was this true or did Patrick love David so much that he was willing to risk life in prison or the death penalty to save him? Number four, Kearney eventually pled guilty to murder against his attorney's advice, 21 total murders in exchange for being spared the death penalty. And then number five, new info, Uh, back in 2018, Australian true crime author Amanda Howard on Studio 10, an Australian talk show, stated that she had been corresponding via letter with Patrick. He seems to really like to uh, write letters to people. And she said that Patrick told her that uh, he, he knew Lee Harvey Oswald before Oswald was alleged to have assassinated President Kennedy in November of 1963, a year after Kearney said he'd killed three people. Kenny, uh, Kearney and Oswald are the same age, born almost exactly a month apart. 
He told Amanda that he said he drove Oswald once to the Mexican border, said we both attended military language school and had been in top secret military language operations. In fact, I met Oswald through a friend who had also done those things. And then Kearney wrote, Lee said he was about to go hitchhike to Mexico City, but after Mexico, he returned to the USA, then made a second voyage to to Mexico City later. I nearly went with him. And then he added later in the letter, Oswald sometimes affected a false German accent and tried to pretend that he was some sort of spy. And basically, Kearney just went on to say that Oswald, while he basically was involved, you know, hinted that he was involved with the government and some kind of plot to kill Kennedy and also that he was not smart enough to have killed Kennedy himself. So that's the one thing I like about this dog fucker is that he thinks Oswald didn't act alone. Time suck. Top five takeaways. And by the way, I don't believe for a second that he actually hung out with Oswald. But it was just uh, pretty interesting. Patrick Kearney, the trash bag killer, has been sucked. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for help again in making time suck. I hope this episode was somewhat smooth. Man, sources fucking scattered all over the place with this one today. And so much conflicting information. But in the end, I feel like, uh, you know, for uh, compared to what's out there about this guy, it was pretty cohesive. Uh, Special thanks to uh, Queen of Bad Magic for doing so much for our family so I have time to make these episodes each week thanks to the Suck Ranger Tyler C for producing directing today and to the Art Warlock Logan Keith for helping with production thanks also to Bitelixer for upkeep on the Time Suck app the Art Warlock Logan Keith again for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com making the Wet Hot Bad Magic Summer Camp banner uh, helping run our socials along with the Suck Ranger and a team managed by our social media strategist Ryan Handelsman thanks to producer Olivia Lee for the initial research this week and thanks to the all-seeing eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad, for making sure Discord keeps running smooth. Everyone over on the Time Sucks subreddit and Bad Magic subreddits. I do peek in there, these places, just, you know, trying to get a feel for the pulse, what people are thinking, trying to make the show better. Uh, next week on Time Suck, uh, I feel like it's been a while since we've really uh, got into a cult, and we are going to go cult, 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 cult. Uh, this time with the Sullivanians, pronounced by some YouTubers as Sullivanians. But I think Sullivanians is the way to go. The Sullivanians were a little-known cult based around James Sully Sullivan, one of the main characters in Pixar's Monsters Incorporated. Peaking at a membership of just over 800 in 2002, a year after the movie's release, the Sullivanians would show their extreme dedication by donning blue fuzzy suits and breaking into homes to harness screams. They hoped to harness enough screaming power so they could be literally transported to the universe of Monsters, Inc., They believed that inside each and every one of them was a monster waiting to be released. And then those monsters would be released in the most horrifying of ways when one cult member snuck into the bedroom of someone who didn't exist because that's not who the Sullivanians are at all. But that would be fucking cool. Now, the real Sullivanians also interesting. Little known cult living on Manhattan's Upper West Side from the 1960s to the early 1990s with membership peaking around 400 members in 1974. Quite a few. Uh, At the helm of this group, a very controversial figure, Saul Newton, a man who claimed to have revolutionized psychology through his therapeutic practice. Saul and other therapists who worked at the Sullivanian or the Sullivan Institute, excuse me, would recruit patients into communal apartments where they lived a free love, sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. Oh, fuck yeah. So why did they do that? Because they were taught that monogamy was bad. That's what Saul said. Monogamy, especially your parents, you know, uh, version of monogamy had fucked up your life, caused all kinds of mental illness. That was why patients had to cut ties with their family members, restrict social activities only to include other Sylvanians, and read Saul's manifesto, Conditions for Human Growth. Right? It was like their Bible. 
In these groups' apartments, members would go on, quote, dates with one another, ideally with as many other people as possible, would be criticized uh, for being monogamous if they tried. If you happen to uh, be or become a parent, you would likely only see your child a couple hours a week because you otherwise are, you know, you're pumping them full of neuroses if you're trying to spend too much time with your kids. Uh, Some kids were sent to boarding school. Their parents severed contact with them entirely, and this was condoned by the group. Through the group's 30-year history, members of this weird cult performed insane plays, recorded revolutionary music. Can't wait to hear that. Hope I can find some. Uh, Led strange raids on neighbors' apartments and businesses and slowly devolved into paranoia regarding, well, just about everything. And while continuing to uh, line, or all while, excuse me, continuing to line their therapist's pockets with cold, hard cash. The strange, sex-filled story. Hail Safina of the Sullivanians. Next week on Time Suck. Right now, we're heading to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Okay, first update from Sharp Sack Mind. Tim, I don't know how to say your last name. Cassior. Cassior! Cassore! Spaghetti! Uh, Tim writes regarding the Amanda Knox suck. Dan, in your last time suck, why didn't they DNA test the turd? That would have told us who the killer was. Hashtag test the turd. (laughs) Well, thank you, Tim. That's a great thought. And, uh, I'm guessing those idiot investigators probably just flushed it. Thank you for sending the message with, uh, hashtag test the turd written. That's exactly why I included it. Uh, now another quick one. Because we're going to have a long one at the end. A shout-out request from Horny Sack and hard, olive-oiled father daddy, Dan Young. Uh, Dan writes, Dan, I, your loyal space lizard, am writing this to tell you that I love my girlfriend, Laura, who isn't a lizard. Yuck. She has only recently started sucking on your info and goes for murder sucks. I hope you'll read this on a non-murder suck. I didn't, obviously. That way she hears this a long time from now. And either absolutely hates me and this message, which is funny to future me, or she loves it and future me gets laid based on something in the past, which let's not get ourselves all mind fucked over that back to the future style. Regardless of all that, I give her three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. I hope she still likes the chicken soup, which is our code for sex. Yes, read that. She will be embarrassed. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Well, Dan, I did choose to read this on a murder suck because I want you to get laid faster or be left quicker. get laid faster or have her leave you sooner so you can find someone who appreciates a greater diversity of topics jk kind of fucking suck it laura you chicken soup loving freak hey lucifina and by it i mean hot hard dripping father daddy dan now another quick one from puss ejection cam ford who writes i (laughs) this is you know obviously uh, relating to the caesar suck i was born Derek. 1981 and was a front butt and was a front butt dump having just started to listen to your Caesar episode while walking a very good boy Bo, Bo Dalmatian and our sweet lady Maya Pitbull Rescue I just want to say thank you for your comedies as I enjoy your open-minded point of view lover of Bojangles Lucifina and wrestling you 100% suck three stars hugs and kisses Cam P.S. Mother thank you Cam I only read your message because you wrote front butt dump, which I can't say quickly. I didn't, I like that phrase, but it's kind of a tongue twister for me. Front butt dump. From a dump. From a dump. Front butt dump. Okay. Well, from one front butt dump to another. Hail Nimrod. One more. I'm really trying to make that phrase stick. Uh, ending on a, a big one from a badass motherfucking beat sack. Here to give D&D one hell of a positive PSA. Super sucker Scott Smith writes, Hello to the Time Suck crew. And to the ultimate paladin of Nimrod, 
I shall not apologize for the length of this email, for I do not wish the wrath of the suckmaster to hit me with his mush mouth of knowledge attack, dealing 12 die 10 of necrotic pronunciation onto me. Nice. Nor do I wish his faithful animal companion, Bojangles, to hit me with his communistic krill bite. I merely want to thank you for sucking on a topic I've been waiting years for you to do. I wanted to actually share my story of triumph over depression and suicide. Yes, it was you and Dungeons and Dragons that allowed me to do this. But first, a little backstory. I'm a Marine Corps veteran who served two tours in Iraq back in 2009 and 2010. Being a Marine, things were super easy and relaxed out there. JK. I don't have to tell you about the trauma, death-defying experiences, or the demons that constantly battle in my head for superiority. I don't feel I stand out by any means, nor do I think I have it worse than the next service member that did their time. But I can't tell you enough how tough it has been. For more than a decade, I prayed that I just simply wouldn't wake up every day. Didn't want to inflict harm on myself. I just wanted it to all end without leaving a tragic scene for my wife and kids to find. I just wanted it to stop. Since leaving the service in 2010, the VA has pushed 17 different medications onto me to try and alleviate my symptoms of depression, anxiety, and PTSD. It was a nightmare. At one point, I was taking 24 different pills a day in order for me to function. Holy shit. I spent a couple years as a zombie in a shell of my former self and other years waking from nightmares on a nightly basis. Then it happened. I was working at a meaningless job at the time, one where I filled vending machines while wearing a headset that didn't work. I wore, <laughs> That's pretty funny. I wore it for the sole purpose of making strangers think twice about approaching me. That's fucking great. <laughs> I get it. It was just me and my service dog, Maddie. I worked 10 plus hour days in and out of buildings with my pup just doing my job. One day I decided to buy a working pair of headphones and turn on some Pandora stand-up comedy. Yours came on. I forgot how funny you were in my earlier years and immediately got hooked to your stand-up again. I'm proud to tell you that you made this guy laugh and smile a few times while at this point in my life. You made my days way more bearable and for that I thank you. Then there was an announcement on Pandora about Time Suck. I immediately started downloading episodes and have been hooked to all of the bad magic shows ever since. Cut to a year later, or cut to a year or so later, one of the guys that worked at the same company as me stopped me as I was leaving the building one night. He explained to me that he was a closet nerd, a fucking nerd, uh, and had recently wanted to start playing Dungeons and Dragons again. It had been years since he had played, but needed friends to play with him. To this day, I have no idea why I agreed to do so, but it set off a chain of events that has changed my life. He, myself, and a few of his personal friends hopped online to an RPG playing website and started playing. I was immediately hooked. I had enjoyed playing RPG video games as a kid, but this felt so much different, so much more fun. Once the shortened campaign had ended, I told him I wanted to give DM a shot. I got to work immediately. All my spare time, this is awesome. I uh, was then devoted to creating my own world, ranging from small villages to giant cities. I fucking love this. I created NPCs, non-player characters, big, bad, evil assholes, and special friends for my players to meet along the way. After a few months, I got everyone together in person, and we started rolling die. Excuse me, dice. You wrote it correctly. Uh, we have been playing the same campaign. I think you did. I get those two confused. We have been playing the same campaign in a world and adventure of my making for over three years now. We meet weekly in my home, share laughs, solve puzzles, and enjoy each other's company for multiple hours. It has literally been uh, been life-saving. Anytime I feel like my demons are starting to emerge, I pull them from my head and put them on paper as the next villain that my friends take pleasure in destroying. Anytime I feel guilt, I write storylines to connect my friends' characters to lost loved ones in our games. Man, you're a fucking artist. That's yeah. And anytime I feel alone, I simply call them up and say, let's have a random extra session night this week, and they're always down. I oh, got a good crew. This journey that I've been blessed with has not only changed me, but it changed the lives of so many people out there. Since I started playing more, I've made many new friends, made campaigns for my family to play and enjoy, and I even DM for a group of veterans every week online as a Twitch stream. 
There's something about setting aside the pain and heartache of this world while immersing yourself into a fictional one of tri- a fictional one of triumph, fun, and fellowship with friends. Thank you for listening to this rant of mine, but I wanted to show you how your comedy in some tabletop role-playing game from the 70s has literally saved my life. I want to live. I want to keep sharing my stories and games with others like me. Oh, fuck yeah. Hell Nimrod. It only helps. If it only helps one other person, then that's something I can use to keep going. Yep. Thank you again for the amazing work you and the Bad Magic crew are constantly doing. Know that you guys and gals are responsible for happiness in this world. Love you guys. Scott, P.S. You mentioned the Ravenloft story in your suck. And I have to tell you, it's one of the greatest modules that has been put out. They have revamped it, calling it Curse of Strahd. It's actually the module I am DMing on Twitch with other veterans every Tuesday night. If you want to check it out, just search for MVG, all caps, MVG caps, charity, all one word, MVG charity on Twitch. MVG stands for Military and Veteran Gamers. Great nonprofit that works with veterans using gaming as a form of therapy. PSS, if you should ever want to play again, please, please, please let me know. I would love nothing more than to fly out there for a one-shot campaign for you, the queen, and anyone else that would love to play. I promise to make it super fun, super funny, and one hell of a good time for everyone involved. Oh, man, fucking thank you, Scott. Yeah, man, if we ever uh, have enough time in our lives again to do shit like this, which I will eventually. Oh, that sounds like a blast. And man, I, I, th- that message that you sent in made me so happy. Just like filled my heart with joy. It's just fucking great. Just to uh, have this place where you can pour your imagination into it and just get so much back from it and just give to so many other people's. Man, you're just doing, you're doing a version of what I do. It's just, you're, you're an artist, man. You're an artist and your medium right now is fucking Dungeons and Dragons. You're using, you know, your creativity and your imagination to create this world that people can immerse themselves in. Which is, you know, the scale is different, but the but the basis is not that much different from like somebody who makes a, a movies or a series or books or whatever, and it's fucking beautiful. And art is life saving. I, I don't know what I would do without it, man. And uh, hail Nimrod! I am so happy for you. Keep playing that game. And again, uh, you can search on Twitch MVG Charity. Ah, ending the show, a dark show, on uh, on a very happy note. Thanks to your message. Next time, suckers, I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Please do not shoot anyone in the head this week and then fuck their corpse. Uh, It's not cool. Super not cool. Also, not cool to fuck your dog. Uh, But if you want to lick or suck their buttholes, eh, weird. But really, I guess, you know, who's losing in that situation? So keep on sucking. Magic Productions. Okay, so so Tyler, I, I have a question for you. Okay. What do you think Patrick Kearney was doing with his dog that was more embarrassing than fucking it? I think he tickled his ears until a little pink thing came out, and then he didn't <laughs> lick it. He just looked at it and occasionally touched it until liquid came out, and then he grabbed the liquid with his finger and then licked that. That was very that was very specific. That was very unusual. So you think like a clumsy hand job was better than him fucking the dog? Like more embarrassing. I think so. I think it was something super detailed. Super detailed. Do you think he maybe do you think he ate out the dog's butthole? I think he tossed his salad though. He I tossed think. his fucking salad. Yeah, yeah, it sounds right. He tossed his furry salad. <laughs> <laughs> Caesar salad. <laughs> he tossed his Caesar salads. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.